Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I've got Emma Flukes, who joined me all the way from the future in Tasmania, which is a real place. I Googled it. If you're not familiar with Emma, it may be because she goes about her business without much fanfare. She doesn't uh, seek much attention for her efforts or accomplishments um, or even for the route that she creates. She just kind of does her thing and uh, is quite content over there in Tassie. And behind all of her bikepacking stuff, she is a real-life scientist and I've always personally enjoyed her um, Instagram account, which is the main way that uh, you can you can follow along with with whatever she's got going on. Uh, sometimes it's some crazy bike route there in Tasmania that'll take you right past murder shanties and little cult uh, worshiping installations. I'm not really sure what to call them, but uh, freaky shit out in the middle of nowhere, and she just pedals her little bike all over her state there um, in some pretty crazy places. She has created a route there called the Tassie Gift. And you may remember that Emma was on the podcast two years ago, episode 41. So when you're done listening to this episode, if you want more Emma, you can go back in time and check out our conversation uh, that took place in March of 2020. So we were right in the beginning of the pandemic. And it is kind of interesting to have our two conversations kind of bookend the pandemic, so to speak. So anyway, I'm a big fan of Emma. I really always enjoy our conversations. Unfortunately, she only had a two-hour time window, but maybe that was good because I feel like we could have chatted for several more hours, but I guess that means we'll just have to have her back on again soon. Maybe we shouldn't wait two years before the next chat. We cover a whole lot of variety of topics. My favorite is the wombat uh, segment of this podcast. So if you don't know what a wombat is either, you're in luck. I'm just going to say that and leave it right there. Okay, and let's take a moment to thank the fine folks that made today's episode possible. I'd like to start with our newest group of patrons, starting with Eric Winninger, Justin Keen, and Corey Dees. Appreciate y'all signing up to be sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. And if you would like to join them, you can find out how over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. There's a lot of great benefits to being a patron, but most importantly, you can listen to these episodes guilt-free. All right, everybody, we got Kate Gates back with us from Mulberry Gap, and uh, I like to note that uh, Kate calls in on a landline because uh, cell service isn't so great up there uh, at Mulberry Gap, is it? It is not, and neither is the internet. It's probably the worst internet that you've experienced uh, probably in at least 15 years. But we're really hopeful for Starlink. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, and that should be a selling point or one of the selling points. If you really want to disconnect, you have no choice to do other than that at Mulberry Gap. Uh, but it's always fun uh, trying to connect with you on the landline uh, and taking it back old school. 
You know, we've talked a lot about cycling events, cycling routes, all things cycling and Mulberry Gap, but the reality is is that y'all do a lot more than just host events for cyclists and y'all are cyclists yourselves, but um, there's a lot of other events out there and, and organizations that need a place, a place to go. And so I thought we could talk today about some of the things that you offer um, in that vein. Yeah, we've done, gosh, like a pretty solid mixture of things over the years. Uh, luckily, it's we kind of say, you know, if you don't mind being in the woods and our accommodations and atmosphere are your style, then we can pretty much blend into to whatever is needed for a lot of folks. So we've hosted everything from just, you know, of course, this, the standard weekend is a lot of just solo travelers or folks here as couples or a group of friends, sometimes here to celebrate their anniversary, sometimes doing birthday trips and that sort of thing. But we've also done a fair amount of larger events, a lot of weddings and corporate groups, team trainings, club retreats. And so, yeah, it really does kind of meld to a lot of different uses for folks. We've got, of course, the cabins and, and campsite lodging, as well as the barn, which is where we do breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but it can easily convert into an inside wedding space, a meeting spot, a place for folks to do presentations and that sort of thing. So, yeah, our property is pretty well suited to, to accommodate a variety of different events and groups and the needs that they have. Yeah. And another thing that I want to mention is that I was on your website and I was impressed with how well laid out all the information is. And and specifically, I was noting with the weddings, how they've set it up to where it's like, Tommy and Susie want to get married. They want to go in July and they they break down like all these scenarios and, and pricing and, and it's right there. So I think that's a great first step. And then, you know, kind of like you said, if you've got a group and you think that Mulberry Gap is your vibe, uh, maybe reach out and see what y'all can work out on that. Kate, um, I don't think that I'm going to be getting married again for a third time. <laughs> um, so don't count on my, my wedding reservation anytime soon, but uh, maybe a birthday. Maybe we could look at doing a, a birthday or even like a Bikes for Death podcast out there would be uh, pretty sick to rent that out and throw a big bike party. There you go. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the standard stuff. We can create something new and special just for you, Patrick. Oh, <laughs> y'all are too, too kind. <laughs> All right, and today's episode is also brought to us by Kuat Racks, and I wanted to share a personal story that happened to me Oh, I don't know, like two or three weeks ago, I was going for a bike ride in another city. So I was traveling with my bike attached to the rack and it wasn't very far away. It was only like an hour and a half drive. So I didn't lock my bike when I initially put it on the bike rack. And on the way, I got thirsty and got the munchies. So I stopped into a gas station in this cute little town that's known for its arts and craft shows. I've never been to one of them, but I hear about them and I know they're quite popular. So I'm going through this town. And I mean, it's just littered with people I pull into the gas station and there's people everywhere. And I thought to myself for a second, I'm like, hey, you should go lock your bike before you run into the gas station. But I was like, you know, there's a bunch of people here. I'm sure they got cameras. I mean, there's too many eyeballs to steal my bike, right? So I left my bike, ran inside, and they had a sandwich counter inside. I was like, oh, man, those look good. So I went up to the sandwich counter, and the line was too long. And so I was like, ah, screw it. I'll just, you know, I was kind of in a hurry. 
just grabbed some munchies and a drink and uh, went out back and uh, checked out and went out to my van. And while I was walking toward my van, a guy walked past me and said, hey, dude, nice bike. I was like, hey, thanks, man. appreciate it. And I got in my van and started driving away. And for some reason, I started to like replay that conversation in my head. And I was like, huh, he was looking at my bike. How closely was he looking at my bike? So I pulled over and went back and looked. And sure enough, the uh, buckle that holds the rear wheel in place was undone. The front arm that secures the wheel was still there, but for sure he was trying to take my bike. And I'm still shocked by it, to be honest with you. There's so many people around. I don't know how he thought. I mean, I guess he was just going to take it and ride it away and like hope nobody noticed. I I don't really know. I've never been much of a thief myself, so I don't know what goes on um, in their heads and, uh, you know, when you can and can't get away from it. But, you know, the thing about it is I have the Kuat NV 2.0 base and uh, it's great rack. I love it. But one of the really neat things about it is that it has an integrated cable lock right in the frame of the rack. So it doesn't take any time to pull it out, put it on your bike frame and, you know, walk away somewhat worry free. Let's be honest. We've all heard the saying that locks only stop honest people. But, you know, the reality is if you're running into a store real quick, that really can save your day, save your bike from being stolen. And I was like, number one, I need to start making sure I always lock up my bike because it's right there. And number two, I need to let y'all know about it. First, if you don't have a Kuat rack, what the heck? You got to go get a Kuat rack and utilize that integrated cable bike lock that comes right in the frame, making it super easy. So, uh, yeah, lesson learned. I almost learned a super hard way, but I'm so, uh, so grateful that, um, it wasn't worse. And I'm actually looking at my bike right now. Hi bike. Sorry. I love you. I didn't mean it. Um, and next time I'll lock you up. Okay. So remember Kuat because you love your rack. All right. All right. Bills are paid and it is time to get to today's episode But real quick, I just want to say that we really can't do these episodes without support. So I really appreciate every single advertiser, sponsor, and patron that is able to help us continue to produce this podcast. So when you're looking to support some bike companies, be sure to check out the ones that are supporting the Bikes for Death podcast. And if you can... Maybe kick in a couple extra dollars over on Patreon to keep the wheels turning and the gears shifting. All right, that is it. Let's get to today's episode with Emma Flukes. This is one that I was really excited about. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. But first, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. 
It's 7.30 p.m. on Sunday here, and I'm drinking coffee because I was starting to get like a little tired, and I was like, uh-uh. So <laughs> it's, not, you know, it's weird to be like, yeah, it's Sunday, the end of my weekend. I'm kind of like winding down, thinking about starting my week and you're like bright eyed and bushy tailed and ready to go. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I just got back from, um, from a weekend of mountain biking up the other end of the state. So I'm kind of just recovering, recovering on my Monday morning, but yeah, fudging it. Well, I was going to ask you if you did any riding this, uh, this weekend. Yeah, so nothing, you know, way out there super exciting, but um, there's a place called Derby, which is in the northeast of the state, and there's an amazing mountain bike network up there. And so um, I go up there pretty frequently just because it's a, a good place to get a bit of skills to pay the bills because I don't have a lot of that. So, yeah, <laughs> there's lots of good, uh, you know, blue blue green trails. Um, there's some some pretty gnarly ones too, but I stay well away from them because I'm pretty accident prone. <laughs> well, this, actually, I had this as one of my questions much later on, but let's just go ahead and address it. Are you, you know, I was kind of like just reviewing your history on the bike and like having followed you through social media. Are you accident prone or you're, you just like, what's going on there? I think, I think I just had a really bad run recently. Um, so like I obviously spend a lot of time on the bike and I'm really careful when I'm doing bikepacking stuff. I crash all the time if I'm doing normal mountain biking, but if I'm doing bikepacking stuff, you know, it's often pretty remote, bags on board. It's a lot easier to break stuff when you've got a bit of weight on the bike. Um, but yeah, recently I've had a couple of couple of pretty bad offs. To be fair, one of them wasn't my fault because there was a wombat involved. Um, but yeah. Well, let's it, save, it's a bit I want to save it. We're going to, that's a yeah, teaser no for later. Teaser. No but I have, um, yeah, I've noticed that you you've been dealing with a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of injuries and some health scares and stuff that, yeah, I definitely want to, uh, talk about, but is, is in general though, are you like a, uh, an accident prone person or is it just, I mean, it's kind of the nature of the things you're doing. Things are going to kind of happen sometimes, you know? I think it's, I think it's probably more the latter. Um, I'm not particularly coordinated, but I'm aware of that. So I try and apply more caution than, than I otherwise would. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're a scientist. You're smart. <laughs> you're trying to protect that brain. I try. I try. <laughs> uh, so I was looking. I don't know. Um, I thought this was kind of a cool coincidence. But our first episode that we did, and for people who are, um, you know, maybe don't, uh, maybe they listen to the first one, but episode forty-one, uh, you were on the podcast, and that one came out March thirty-first, twenty. Shit, when was it? Was it 2020? It would have been 2020. Yeah, yeah it was. Re- it was right at the beginning. We had a we had a COVID chat and I was thinking about it the other day and I was I was like, oh wow, that didn't age well. Because I remember <laughs> saying something like, Oh, you know, this the world can't possibly shut down. You know, this won't last. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. So that was March 31st. So as far as like I remember it was March 14th here when I was like kind of tuning into COVID and it's like, okay, this shit's getting serious. But at that time it was like a two week narrative. Like we're going to just hang tight for a couple of weeks and then, you know, it's going to be fine. Um, two years later. So kind of the funny thing is, I mean, this episode is going to come out March 30th, 2022. So almost two years to the day, uh, since our last chat. So I just, I don't know. I thought that was kind of an interesting coincidence and like, and and yeah, kind of putting that in perspective, we we chatted at the very beginning of COVID, and now we're kind of. I mean, a lot's happened, but you know, now we have a war with Ukraine, so um, there's no longer COVID. 
it cancelled it yeah, out. Yeah, COVID's gone. Yeah, everyone's shifted their their um, expertise from being epidemiolog- epidemiologists to world war experts. And it's good. It's good to yeah. see that so many yeah. experts <laughs> popping up. <laughs> I, <laughs> where would we be? I said this on the podcast not too long ago, but you, uh, oftentimes, and I'd like to get your perspective, but it's like, wh- where are the real scientists? And they're like, they're probably being busy being like real scientists. They're not like on the computer 24 hours a day arguing uh, with people on the internet, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's just that as a, I can speak as a real scientist, um, but you get a little fatigued with trying to, trying your best to educate for the greater good and just being shut down by people who've watched a three minute YouTube video. So you just get tired and you stop doing it. So if, if you've uh, got, got tired of trying to fight the good fight, you don't jump on the keyboard and and try and defend your position. So there's not a lot of uh, real scientists who are trying to educate online anymore because it's just become a, uh, a tiring place to be, I think. Yeah, as a shit show, it's like why put yourself in that arena and expose yourself to that when you can just like go to work, put your nose down, focus on, you know, the task at hand that you know will hopefully have some positive implications rather than, yeah, kind of like churning your wheels and whatever that shit show is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what uh what do you do for a living? I I, I don't remember the specifics, but uh, it's marine, marine. Yeah. Based? So it's an interesting question. Cause I'm not really sure what I do for work. Um, oh, I am, I am. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I am trained as a marine scientist, like a marine ecologist. Um, but in the last few years, I've been working a lot more with, with data. So a lot of GIS data and, um, kind of scientific communication from the data side of things, because there's this, this thing with researchers, they get really protective over their data that they produce and they just stick it on a hard drive under their desk. And there's these, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of information that gets lost because someone's paranoid about data theft. And so part of my work is uh, trying to dig that stuff up and change the the culture of data sharing and communicate it in a, you know, visually exciting, interactive way. Um, and basically increase the value of the research that's being done because you reach a greater audience, um, you know, it's interoperable, it's all that sort of stuff. So I kind of went from a, a career where I was doing lots of boating and diving, which was great, but didn't really give you any time off the clock to this odd fringe career where I sit behind a computer and still deal with researchers and research data. But once I clock off, theoretically, I'm I'm off. So I kind of, I kind of traded uh, fun at work for fun outside work. And I think I'm okay with that balance now. Yeah. Well, do you like, you like the job that you're doing? I mean, obviously it's much different, but do you, is it fulfilling? Yeah, it is because I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I just get to make shit up as I go along and I'm getting really good at pretending. Um, but I I wouldn't really care what I did for work as long as I was learning new skills basically. So, you know, it could be, I could be flipping burgers if I didn't know how to flip burgers, that wouldn't bother me. It's just, I always feel like I need to be progressing whatever I'm doing in life as long as there's some sort of progression that I can see I don't really care what it is yeah it sounds almost like you need to create the Facebook for scientists where like you have to be legit to get on and you know share your ideas and then yeah and then have like real conversations about whatever the topic is but that would be really interesting and and like filter out all the 
the numb nuts that don't have a clue what you're talking about. Like, it's just like a race, you know, it's like some races you have to qualify for. You have to like say, okay, I've done this race and this race and this race. Okay. You can get in, you know? Well, I think that's what um like scientific conferences are for where everyone turns up in their Hawaiian shirts and their, um, their sandals. Uh, it's just this little secret society where everyone self-validates because they know that they're legit. But yeah, maybe, maybe a Facebook would be the way to go. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't even have a high school diploma, so don't ask me to you know do your job for you. But I'll sure try with my all my education. Uh, it isn't. It isn't. It, it seems like an interesting uh, uh, problem to solve and one that would be worthwhile. So I wanted to ask you, um, zooming out though, like as a human species, just in general, like how fucked are we from a scientific perspective? <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, I'd give us about a nine and a half. Yeah. We're fucked. We're very fucked. Um, I, I don't really know how, how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole. But, uh, yeah, the, the world is a very rapidly changing place. I, I'm, I don't know. You and I have, like, talked about it and you uh, you have a – uh, your personality like comes through on the internet. It's kind of like this morbid uh, personality that's like trying to put a happy spin on the fact that, you know, we're all kind of like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm more interested to hear your perspective, honestly, uh, and and kind of what's uh, what's driving that. Oh, look, I guess there's there's so many there's so many things going on in in the world that we fixate on. Uh, example being. COVID. There's obviously now currently a horrific world war effectively happening, um, but they are quite short-term, um, short-term things that do have a, a big immediate impact. But there's the the elephant in the room that is climatic change, which is you know global warming, um, you know melting ice caps, rising sea levels, increased frequency and severity of, of storm events. So that's flooding, um, you know bushfires, tornadoes, all that sort of stuff. And this is happening and it's been forecast for, you know, 50 years plus. It's happening at rates uh, greater and worse than we could have predicted and it's accelerating. And the the issues that are um, fueling that are basically based on population. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. There's emissions, but it's it's because there are too many people on earth. And yet the the very moment that something comes along that threatens uh, the number of people on, on earth, <clears throat> COVID, uh, the first thing we do is, is we rush to protect the, the human population, which of course, you know, that's a, that's a natural instinct. No one wants to see their friends, relatives, you know, fellow countrymen dying, but that's not addressing the elephant in the room here that uh, the, the earth is basically on a trajectory to become a place that is not uh, supportive of human life. So, you know, huge areas that become too arid to grow crops or there's no fresh water, you know, some of the great river systems will dry up. And we talk about it and we make, you know, small steps to try and mitigate emissions or switch to, um, you know, clean energy, but it's nowhere near enough. And, and we know that it's not enough. And so it's kind of token efforts and, yeah, I guess that was one of the reasons actually that I sort of took a sidestep from pure research because I was involved in a lot of, um, you know, marine ecological research, but with a climate change interest because climate has such a huge impact on the marine environment. And it was just really getting me down 
because it's not like I don't know these things and I'm not still exposed to them, but at least I'm not having to write up papers where I say, mm, you know, end of the world is nigh. I can just pretend that I, I don't know about it for, you know, a few days, weeks at a time. Uh, but yeah, my, my opinion as both a human and a scientist is that we're pretty fucked and uh, the, the world would be a very different place to live in for, I don't have kids, but, you know, your kids and um, the next generation of, of humans and, and for their kids, geez, I can't even fathom what it's going to be like. Yeah. So that's a nice, nice note. <laughs> that, well, that's why we just, I mean, honestly, that is exactly why we only usually talk about bikes and bikepacking in the outdoors. Because if you look at like politics, you know, for example, in America, I'm just like, if you zoom out, I'm like, oh, we're all fucked. You know, I mean, just, you know, it's like, it's like, it's hard to like, motivate yourself to dip your oar into the water because the water is so thick and it's like, I'm not making any progress. And I used to be like a lot more politically active and stuff. And it's just like, I feel like it's just, it's not, it's like a drop in the bucket and it's not, you know, doing actually any, any good. So it can be frustrating. So I promise we'll talk about bikes, but let's tie an unhappy bow on, on this. Like what is, I mean, is there anything that we can do or or what does this like ultimately look like? Do we know? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, it's really what's difficult for us to predict is exactly when there will be tipping points and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, at what point does this continent become uninhabitable to human life without air conditioning and, you know, desalination plants. Um, putting an actual date on that is difficult, but we do know that at current trajectories with current population and current um, energy production technology that we will reach a point where the only way you can live in uh, vast areas of the world is indoors with air conditioning, with desalination plants, um, potentially with respirators, depending on what happens with, you know, volcanic activity or pollutants. And it is like kind of the uh, end of the world movies you see, but I'm not suggesting it's going to happen tomorrow, but that's that's where, where things will yeah, end up. Yeah. Unless, of course, there's a global pandemic and population is reduced to a, a more manageable level. And we've sort of nipped that one in the bud. So I'm not really sure what the next strategy is. Um, so <laughs> well, they say another, as, I mean, they say that was just a warm up for, you know, something that could really uh, take out a, a larger scale of the population, which has happened in our history before. Um, you know, we're, we're fairly a weak species in that regard that we're really susceptible to that kind of stuff, aren't we? Yeah, well, the thing is, um, all all species of, of animals are, um, if they're at a high trophic level, which means they're, um, you know, like a dominant species, they're subject to boom and bust population curves. So basically the population increases exponentially and then something big happens which drops the population levels to, um, a, you know, more manageable level for the environment. And so that's why you generally, if you have, say, a grazing species that eats, you know, grass and plants, generally you won't have them eat themselves to death because they'll have this boom and bust with the population. And what probably changed that with humans is uh, the invention of penicillin. Uh, so we no longer have, um, whenever we have a, you know, disease outbreak or a, a viral outbreak, which would ordinarily kill a lot of the population, we now have modern medicine and drugs and intervention. And so that 
self-regulation of population doesn't happen anymore. And it's because we are, um, we believe we're advanced. We have done some stuff certainly. Um, and we're kind of, we're, we're toying with nature in a way that wasn't intended. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what's going on, but who, who knows what will happen as far as, you know, we, weed shit that grows in a petri dish and gets out or, you know, it's, I don't think anyone, well, look at our conversation two years ago. I certainly didn't predict that, <laughs> that things would play out in this particular manner. And here we are. When we were in the midst of the pandemic, I don't know at one point, but I remember talking to a, a good friend of mine and I told him, I was like, I feel like this is kind of, you know, the, the earth getting back at the population. It's like, we've done so much harm and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like the way things work is like a, a disease comes in and it takes out the, the old and the tired and the weak. And, you know, it's like, that's kind of the way that the world works, you know, I mean, if you're a deer and you can't, you know, forage for yourself and you're, you know, not capable, well, you're going to get eaten by a coyote, you know, and, and you're going to be somebody's food. And, you know, that's kind of the circle of life. And you're right. We've kind of like figured out a few hacks, but we're still part of this greater, you know, earth and, and we're just, a, a yeah, we're very weak in, in many aspects. Yeah, the thing is, it's it's not um it's not socially acceptable to support natural selection in humans, apparently. So you know, if if you are someone who has um, uh, who is immunocompromised or has asthma or is overweight or has heart disease or is old, you're not allowed to um, suggest that their life is worth less than someone is who is healthy. But if you were a deer, it would be. But I didn't say that. I'm I'm not a sadist. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it, it equates to the value of the human life. It it doesn't it doesn't care about the value of human life. The value of human life, the value of life, period, doesn't care to science, to nature, to the wind, to the tornadoes, to the raging river, the whatever it is, you know, it just it doesn't give a fuck. And we we yeah, as humans, I think we think that we're just like the center of so much and you know to kind of shift to bike packing and to uh to the outdoors i think one of the perspectives that i like and i'd like to get your opinion is that it, it does give you um insight into like being a little bit less powerful a little bit less capable a little bit smaller a little bit more you know exposed to elements and the you know whatever it is the wind the rain the rocks everything you know so is i don't know do you see some kind of solace in that and does that help to bring things into perspective at all for you yeah yeah absolutely um i just as you've described i find that getting out into you know, places where there's there's no other humans or it's really wild, it's really shitty weather, it makes me feel small and insignificant and humbled and that helps keep me grounded. And it just, it stops me thinking about all the other shit that's going on for a second because it, I, I realise how vulnerable I am to just dying and that's great. It just makes me so happy. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's an odd thing. Um, but it's liberating I think though. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's freeing in a way like you don't it's going to happen, you know, so. Yeah, I think it's a good way to crack into crack through my narcissism as well. Um, but it is it is certainly a, a way that I try and um, keep keep my feet on the ground by reminding myself of how little I matter in the scheme of things. And I think everyone would benefit from from that sort of grounding. I think so. I think we see the people that do 
I, I don't know. I feel like they're tapping into something and, and I hope that's one of the things that they're tapping into. And I think, you know, after I've had this podcast, it does seem like a lot of people I think feel that same way and it, and it ultimately does good. Um, Tasmania. So you live, you not only live in Tasmania, which is a real place. I Googled it. It's not just because like from my perspective, it's like the Tasmanian de devil on like growing up is like, it's like, is this even a real place? But it is a real place. You live there. Um, what can you tell us about Tasmania? I actually did some research and I'm kind of curious about it. Oh, I'm curious to, to hear what, what your research turned up. But um, yeah, so look, Tasmania is an island off the southeast coast of Australia. Um, it is, it's a very sort of um, compacted little island. It's very diverse. It's, it's like someone took a big, you know, section of continent and squashed it together. So if you travel east, west or north, south, the terrain uh, changes so quickly and the um, the flora and fauna changes so much quicker than than you find anywhere on, on mainland Australia. Um, the population's about 550,000, which I think is quite a lot, but clearly it's not. Um, I, I live in Hobart, which is the capital city, which I think is, I don't know, 250,000 people maybe. Um, it's not, I think Hobart's not considered rural. Like it's absolutely not rural. You know, we have every we have everything that the mainland has. Um, but yeah, Tasmania is really special from a environmental perspective. It's it has a lot of wilderness. So um I think it's something like 20, 20 oh, it's either 25 or 40 percent of the state is World Heritage Area. I should have looked this up, but I think um, it's 40 percent. I think it's 42 percent. That's what go. I, that's Thank what Wikipedia you. said. <laughs> No, that sounds that sounds legit. So we have a huge amount of the state that is um is tied up in in world heritage protection. That is true, like pristine wilderness. Um, yeah. But also, a lot of the state is um, forested. So forestry is a really large industry here, um, as is hydroelectrics. And so those are industries that do, you know, fell trees or build power lines or you know dam dam waterways. So they do have a big impact. But also, it means that there is a lot of land that is effectively industry owned but you can access as a member of the public so it's not tied up in in private ownership and for someone like me it's just amazing because it just feels like this big private playground where you can wander around you know wherever you please um, on foot or on a bike and you know I get frustrated by private land ownership but compared to places like where you live um, my understanding is that it's a, a very different world and, and we're very lucky Oh my gosh. Yeah. I would die. I'd be like, yeah, what you said, you said it's a playground and that's a, it's an adult playground for somebody who loves the outdoors, uh, and isn't afraid of some adventure. And what I like to say is mystery adventure, which is exactly <laughs> right. what, you know, what you're basically doing a little bit of mystery, a little bit of adventure, because oftentimes, you know, my sense is that you don't really know exactly where you're going or what you're going to find or come across. So like, I do want to come back to Tasmania, but real like how um how do you go about like planning a route in Tasmania? Like you just look for old roads and just go one weekend or Yeah, so I mean I have a bit of an attitude where I try and ride new places, you know, new roads wherever I can. E even if I have favorite favorite roads, favorite tracks, I try and avoid them just because who knows what's there if you don't look. Um and so we have some pretty good maps for the for the state because 
back when the forestry industry actually had money, um, they would map out whenever they laid down new roads because our industries are the, the major source of roads in the state or, or tracks. Um, so we have these um, state-based topographic maps that have got pretty good indication of, of tracks. Um, and so, yeah, you know, given that it's a fairly relatively small island, I kind of, um, I'm kind of confined. There's only so many places I can go, but I'll just try and, you know, bash a, bash a new way through an area. So I'll check out some maps in a, in a region that I have some interest in. If I can find tracks through an area, great. If I can find something on satellite view that looks like it could possibly be passable, great. I try and um, plan a few different bailouts in case I get stuck halfway through the middle of, you know, some impassable scrub rash and I've got to turn around because there's no phone reception for most of the state outside of the, um, you know, the the town areas. Um, yeah, and just just go, you know, strap enough food on your bike that you're not going to die, make sure you've got satellite communication, pack a few spares. Uh, water is generally not too difficult to come by because, you know, I'm down here at 42, 43 degrees south and there's big hills and water catchments. Um and yeah, you know, see what happens. Like my motto is always, "What's the worst that can happen?" Um, <laughs> if you get if you if you get in somewhere, you can usually get out. The exception being when you climb down into ravines, but that's another story. Um, that's all part of the adventure. So yeah, I just sort of bashed my way through places. What uh, what's up with the murder shanties, the creepy dolls, and the satanist? I don't know ritualistic. Uh, installments, art, art installations on the trails. Look, I don't. I I never realised that this was abnormal because it's it's what I've always seen growing up in Tassie. But apparently, apparently it's, it's um, a little super abnormal. <laughs> so yeah, we we seem to have a lot of. We do have quite a lot of abandoned. Um, I wouldn't say farmhouses. I'd say very, very, very modest dwellings that have been inhabited by someone at some point and they've just been left to rack and ruin. But there's also a lot of structures that are from historical mining time. So maybe, you know, 100 years ago someone built some shanty. But then there's also um, people who build illegally shanties on forestry land because who knows what they're getting up to out there, but they just erect, you know, temporary or semi-permanent structures. And I do stumble across them quite a bit and sometimes it's I'm a little wary at trying to make sure there's no smoke coming out of a chimney or something because I really don't want to be meeting the person who's living in one of those places but they're almost always un- unoccupied um almost always I, I have, don't like that I word have, almost <laughs> well look I've seen I've seen some that clearly are inhabited and then I just turn around and get the fuck out because it's not it's not a good place to be. Um, there I wandered up onto some uh, homeless encampments before, which I'm sure aren't too dangerous, but I just, I leave them alone, you know? It's like, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we don't really, like we have home, homelessness in the two major like cities, but yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't get it out in the bush. Um, it's just the sort of, the sort of person who's choosing to live off grid illegally somewhere like there, I figure, you know, they've got their reasons, whether it's um, just the the solitude, they've got something to hide, there's drugs involved. You know, we've got a lot of bikies in, in the state and uh, there what? are, 
uh, bikies, so like motorbike gangs. Uh, okay, motorbike so they gangs. Can, yeah, so they control the the drugs, the drug trade, um, basically. Oh, cool. um, yeah, and yeah, so it, there are certain areas which are known to be hotspots for bikey families, and it's kind of just bikey law. There's the police won't go into those areas, and um, yeah, I try and try and stay clear of them. And if I see see an inhabited murder shanty there, then yeah, I'm I'm turning around pretty quick. We have some areas like that, like Humboldt County. It's similar to Hobart. Humboldt County up in Northern California is similar to that. It's it's kind of the law that they said, and the police don't really go up there much. Um, is what I understand. It's pretty lawless. Um, so this actually okay. So when I was reading about Tassie, l- l- actually, how far back does your genealogy go? Like, uh, how f- how from Tassie are you? Um, well, you're reading about uh, convicts and inbreeding by any yes, chance? Yes, <laughs> not inbreeding. Whoa, 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 I didn't know about the inbreeding. <laughs> uh, I didn't get the inbreed vibe. Uh, I did get the convict con- uh, convict uh, information. And, uh, yeah, super curious about that and how, you know, foreshadowing, I mean, I don't know. What does that do to like a society? How does a society like develop from there? And I don't know. It's super interesting. I only like read the tidbits, so I don't like know anything, you know? No, that's okay. We don't, um, we don't learn Tasmanian history in schools or anything. So you you probably know as much as I do, because I don't really Google the place that much, but, um, yeah, so Tasmania was, uh, obviously, we had um, Indigenous Australians in Tasmania, but it was colonised by um, Europeans when they set up uh, penal colonies, so um, convict colonies in Tasmania. Um, so the worst, the worst con or the worst criminals from from the UK predominantly were put on ships and sent to Tasmania, and there were a couple of um, convict settlements in some really, really inhospitable places um, down, there's a place called the Tasman Peninsula, which is down the southeast of Tasmania, and also um, on the west coast, which is very, very wild. Um, And, yeah, so the the convicts lived in those areas. They were put to work. Um, They tried escaping, but they'd just die because the environment was just too inhospitable. Uh, There's there's a few stories about people who escaped with, um, with their comrades and then turn to cannibalism and who knows if they're true but they're pretty pretty well steeped um steep stories and so yeah so can i yeah can i just uh when you was there any like physical structure or would they just dump them off on the island and because it was it's an island and it's remote and it's rugged you know well i don't really know obviously they they did live in they had dwellings for for these um, convict settlements, but I don't know whether the convicts built their own settlements, which is pretty pretty dire, um, or whether there was some infrastructure that was put in first. Um, but that's pretty wild shit. Yeah, so I, I believe I don't really know much about my um, my genealogy because I've never looked into it, and I've got a pretty small family. But I do know that on one side of my family, I did come from from a Europe from a a British convict who I think stole some boots and that was enough to get him shipped all the way to Tasmania. Um, so yeah, but yeah, most people who are a few generations Tasmanian have come from convict ancestors, but it's not like we have a, a shrine dedicated to our, our brave convict heritage or anything. No, not that, but I wondered like, okay, so for example, I grew up in Texas and you know, there's this, uh, 
you know, this idea that, you know, the, the people that, you know, the frontiersmen that were really coming in and were experiencing all the American and Indian war. And I mean, these were like crazy motherfuckers. They weren't like the, um, you know, I'm going to take it easy and, and run a bank kind of people. They were, they were fucking wild, wild folks, you know, back in those days. And so there's this like, I guess, arrogance, I guess, that kind of comes along with that. And I don't know if it's, like really in your DNA that you're like a little more wild or if it's just like building off your history or whatever, you know, cause you're kind of, you're kind of a crazy person, like in a good way. I think you're the good kind of crazy, but like what we're talking about, like you go off by yourself to these murder shanties and like what you described in a very like, um, mild way for most people in the world is a little bit on the brave side. I mean, I've never really, it doesn't, it doesn't seem brave to me. It just seems like I've got to do something on the weekend. So <laughs> why, why wouldn't I, you know? Um, the, Interesting. The, honestly, the only thing that's, that's scary in the great outdoors is people. So the further you get away from people, the, you know, I, the, the safer and the more chill it is. And so, yeah, sure, if you come across a murder shanty and there's someone, you know, growing drug crops there and they've got surveillance cameras set up. Yeah, that's pretty scary, but you don't get them in the middle of absolute nowhere. They're always fringe of settlement. So the further you disappear, the safer it is, is always the way I think of it. Okay. So you feel safe around yeah. the murder shanties and cool. I might just move into one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. From Instagram, it looks like your house is kind of nice. So you might want to stay there. I mean, you do have your spiders uh, to keep you company and your stick bugs or whatever the hell those are. This is true. You've done your research. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you have one of the best Instagram accounts on Instagram. Most underrated, I think. I said it the first time, too. And so I'll, uh, I remember, um, yeah, you got to follow Emma. Wait, one fluke shot on Instagram. Because you're, I don't know, I like, I like your humor. And then you also have like, you provide really good information um, not sponsored by anybody. I don't think your any of your shit's published anywhere. You don't write for bikepacking.com or anything. You could. You have some really good stuff that you could put out there, but a lot of it's just on your Instagram, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many people who have great, great insights and they they do sort of formal reviews of gear and they actually have some sort of qualifications or, or pull and I'm just a, you know, I'm a hack like anyone else making shit up as I go along. It's just I tend to be a little bit more analytic about stuff because I'm a scientist. But, you know, I, I figure it's safer to make everything transitory and if people really want to find the information, they can see it or they can, you know, shoot me a message and I don't mind. I'm happy to I'm happy to help out wherever I can, but I'm certainly no expert on any of this stuff and I would never profess to be. But that's what's good about what you're putting out there and the way you're putting it out there, because that's more relatable to people than um, maybe like, you know, somebody who's just like, I don't know, uh, coming coming at it from a more high level. You know what I'm saying? It's like going along for the journey and understanding the process is probably the most valuable thing to the most people, because it's like a lot of times we just see the end product. Right. But it's like, well, what were the steps to get there? And you've done a good job of just being really authentic with your own journey. And it's not, like I said, it's not sponsored or paid for. You're not like trying to write it in some fancy way to get it published. Like, no, you're just like taking people along for the ride. And it's just like pretty authentic, 
and it's it's only your own, but that's the only perspective anybody could ever offer. So you know, it's yeah, good. yeah, of course. I think it's. Oh, good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Well, where, where are we going to go next? I know what we're going to talk about. Oh yeah, I wanted to segue to you. Actually, hold on one second because my blinds are open and I don't want creepers creeping <laughs> on me. I was watching the sunset, which I enjoy, but now it's time to keep out the creepers. Um, no, so the big windows are in, we've sort of got a, a kitchen living area combined, which is like the floor that we hang out on is all glass, but the bedroom is just normal like anyone else's house and has blinds. But um, no, we're not in the middle of nowhere. It's just we're on a hill and above all the peasants, so they can't see in. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. I don't live above the peasants. I live with the peasants. They're right across the street. And I don't, I'm so weird about, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't want someone like looking in my window, you know, like I don't like that. I figure, you know, whatever. If you if you if your blinds are open, then it's, it's their fault. It's their problem, whatever they see. It's not my problem. They're not going to see much. They're going to see me going like this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that guy doing? We do uh, get, um, because I live, I only live about, I don't know, like four Ks as the crow flies from the middle of Hobart, but that's on the edge of bushland because, you know, Tasmania's small. And so you do get wallabies, which are like kangaroos. You do get them just sort of peering in the window all the time because the wildlife just roams around. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. You got a lot of, you got the wildlife in your house and outside your house. Oh, we have, <laughs> there's a lot. Does that ever freak you out? I mean, those I mean, for people who haven't seen your Instagram, you post quite frequently these big ass fucking spiders. They I think they're spiders and they're probably the size of your hand. The other day you set a little baby free. You're like, "Here, go home to your mommy." <laughs> yeah, we look what they're just um they're a, a spider called a huntsman and I mean, they can bite and it does hurt, but they're not like toxic. They're not venomous. Well, sorry, they're not deadly they will just hurt. Um, but everyone has huntsmen in their houses who, if they live near bushland down here, and I'm not really sure why they're so into my house in particular. Um, but you know, it's cause they, you're nice to them. They put it out on the, they're <laughs> like, Hey, this chick is like returning orphans to their mamas and stuff. Well, they're meant to, they're meant to eat other spiders and they okay. don't spin webs. So theoretically, it's good to have them around because they'll eat other spiders, but they absolutely don't. I think mine are just really lazy motherfuckers because there's heaps <laughs> of spiders around. And so it's just, you know, I just, I guess I've got a bit of a breeding colony of spiders and, you know, as long as they don't do me any harm, I just let them be. Well, you're creating your own like natural ecosystem. You don't need pesticides. You got, they're taking care of themselves. See, now I have stick insects in my life. I can't use insecticides because they'll just die because they're also yeah. insects. So, you know, I've just got this. I'm not I'm not the crazy cat lady. I'm the crazy insect lady, it appears. It only happened since COVID lockdown, so I blame COVID for, for this new thing. <laughs> Do you have the same type of affection towards your stick uh, bugs, whatever they're called, that someone may have for their dog or their cat or something, do you think? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that creepy. I recognize You're still that they're a scientist. very different. No, yeah, it's um, it's just look, my lifestyle isn't conducive to to having um proper pets at this stage because if I was a pet owner, I'd want to be the best possible pet owner and stick insects. I can leave alone for a week at a time and not feed them, and they don't die, and I don't feel bad. So you know, yeah, it's just it's just something. 
it's why I switched to cats. Honestly, I was kind of, I've always had a dog, um, throughout my life, but, um, and when I got divorced this last time, she got the dog and I was like, I'm not getting a dog again. Cause like every time I have to go somewhere, you know, somebody has to feed them and walk them and you know, all the things. And I travel a lot. So, um, cats are great. You leave them food and water and, uh, you know, cat litter and you come home and they're happy to see you and they don't have PTSD or anything. They just like, Hey, Oh, you're back. Cool. You know? So I think cats, you could maybe do a cat maybe, I don't know. Oh, I don't think, um, I don't like indoor cats, but there's no way I could have an outdoor cat here because there's just so much wildlife and they murder everything. So, well, that's the thing is outdoor, outdoor cats. Like I think, um, what is it in America? It's like, Outdoor cats kill six. What is it? Hold on. Many, Outdoor many. <laughs> cats kill how many birds? 2.4 billion birds. Number one threat. Cats are the number one threat to birds, outdoor cats. So, yeah, I'm not like either keep your cat inside or don't let it go outside because they are fucking murderers. Like, I, I'm new to cats. This is the first time I've ever had a cat in my whole life. And they're actually pretty interesting to watch because, I mean, if they're in a house, they're interesting because they're trying to kill everything that flies by, every insect. I mean, they're just like, oh, I, I got to kill it, you know? And it's kind of fun to watch from inside. But if they were out there, they would just be like decimating things. Yeah, I, I grew up with um, with cats, a breed called Burmese, and they're quite, they're quite dog-like, but they're also very good hunters. And the house I grew up in wasn't really, you know, near bushland, but you still get um, ringtail possums and bandicoots and all sorts of lovely birds and native bats and that sort of thing. And they would kill everything and they'd bring they'd bring all sorts of things through through the cat door. And so, you know, I remember cleaning up um, headless possums and ducks and just we- weird unidentified animals that were you know, sprayed all over the living room. And I think that sort of, yeah, that that informed me as a child that I shouldn't be having an outdoor cat as an adult. Yeah. Um, as Speaking of like your own indoor pest control, they are good for killing mice. And I haven't had many, but one time uh, the my cat brought a, a mouse to my feet. I was sitting at the desk. I was like, damn, cool, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. You got to find your own indoor ecosystem that works for you. That's that's the motto. <laughs> so let's talk about um, like what is the riding community like? I'm very interested. I'm becoming a lot more interested in Tasmania to be honest with you. Like after I, it's like I'm going to do a little research for this one, and um, because like I don't know, I'm you know I'm I'm in America. I've never been outside of America. Like America is the prism by which I kind of like understand cycling and the cycling community, but you know, I have no idea what it, it's like there. I'm pretty curious. So um, Tasmania, I guess, has a as a reputation for being, um, you know, backwards or behind in a lot of things. And sometimes that's fair, sometimes it's not. Um, as far as cycling down here goes, um, I'd say that the bikepacking gravel sort of scene it was adopted a fair bit later than maybe on the mainland. Um, but we've got a pretty pretty strong scene there but it's more it's more we have a lot of track racing um because we have some some really good tracks and there are national events down here is that like um, running or oh no sorry track cycling 
um, oh, have okay, outdoor yeah, yeah. sort of, yeah, which yeah, is something cool. that I've, yeah, something that I've never done and would be terrible at, but particularly in the north of the state. It's I'd like a, to watch really, one. I'd like to watch yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, it would be, it would be cool, but mad skills and so many watts. It's not, not, yeah. not my type of thing, but yeah. So there's a lot of track cycling, um, quite a lot of road cycling and mountain biking. There's a lot of really great mountain biking in Tasmania, um, partly because Tasmania has a, um, a tourism focus on outdoor um, activities. So we do have a lot of amazing hiking as well. Um, but there has been a lot of um, funding injected into mountain bike trails. And also we've just got such great terrain for, for mountain bike trails. So um, I started riding I started riding on mountain bikes in 2014. And since then, there's just been this explosion of trails. And it's really cool because we have a few really concentrated trail networks. Um, I, I couldn't list them all, but there's probably about eight major trail networks. And, you know, for a state the size of Tasmania, it's, we're incredibly lucky to have access to so many of those. So where I've just come from, Derby, which is considered a really long way away, it's about a three and a half hour drive from Hobart. And that's considered, you know, oh, you wouldn't go there just for just a weekend, which. Oh, I mean, man. Listen, uh, I, when, yeah. I, when I researched this, I, okay, I, I was curious, like, how big it compared to Texas. And it's 25% the size of Texas. Yeah. So, and I drive out of state all the time. So, yeah, there can't be anything that's like, oh, my gosh, how far? Well, and also, like, the, most of the western half of the state you can't drive to anyway because it's all locked up as you know wilderness so there's only the, the furthest distance you can drive is kind of the far southeastern point to the far northwestern point which I've never done in one particular drive like in one single drive but it's probably about I don't know like six six and a half hours and that's the furthest you can drive in a you know straight line I'm gonna do it whenever I come there yeah yeah cool like, that was nothing well, we don't we don't have any um we don't have any uh reliable public transport here so you you've basically got to got to have a car or be comfortable not traveling very far or not have a job and be able to take all the time in the world to get places ooh i like the i like the last option <laughs> yeah sign me up for that one <laughs> i'm warming to that one as well i'm just trying to figure out the finances of being unemployed yes let me know if you figure out that equation <laughs> i'd love to see your math with that um, so you ride, it, it appears, uh, obviously I've never ridden with you, but it appears that you ride solo most of the time. Um, is that by choice or lack of other people that are, are wanting to engage in the same type of riding that you're doing? Um, it's definitely by choice, but also I wouldn't know someone to ask who I would trust if I did want to ride with someone, but no, I, I love riding, um, solo and I've never, I've never done it any other way. So if I go mountain biking for a weekend, for example, I will ride with pe people then, but when I go bikepacking, it's always, it's always by myself. And yeah, it's just, I don't know, like I'm not a, I'm not an antisocial person, but I am definitely a bit introverted and I just find it exhausting having to deal with, you know, social norms, with someone else all day long and also I just don't need to think about their needs and their feelings and you know if they're having a good time or if if they're gonna um, run out of food or whatever it's just so much easier to to manage myself and for me there's I, I guess I, I do enjoy 
Like I obviously post a fair bit on Instagram about when I ride cool places and share photos. And I really enjoy being able to share the things I see and the places I go with people in that way. But I don't feel like I need someone there with me to appreciate it because, you know, I'm having a great time. And honestly, I don't think I'd be a very good person to ride with because I just don't have a lot of compassion for for other people. So (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny. Uh, I, on the other hand, am am extremely empathetic, um, but I also am extremely uh, selective about the people that I go and, and recreate with. And that's, that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think you touched on uh, a lot of them that resonate with me. It's like I'm kind of there for me and the experience and to get away from people rather than to like entertain somebody or, you know, try to worry about their speed or, or whatever it may be that, you know, it does. It becomes like exhausting. I think there are people obviously that like feed off of that and like other people's energy and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm I find it more like it's more like exhausting to like ride with somebody who you may be off sync with or whatever, you know? Yeah, sure. And I think also when you're doing um, any sport, whether it's, you know, hiking or trail running or, or, you know, bikepacking, if you're doing it all day long and it's challenging and there's a fair bit of, a fair bit of logistics going on as far as your gear and your food and monitoring your efforts to make sure you you can ride as far as you need to for that day. Everyone is going to have their own um, ebbs and flows throughout the day and rarely are those going to be synchronised. And so it just, it just makes everything more complicated, even having just two people. But if there's more than that, then you're going to have so many people who are having downs when other people are having ups when you could usually make good headway and uh and unless everyone is really good at managing themselves there's invariably going to be someone who you know screws up their fueling or hasn't got the right spares and for for a lot of people they would enjoy that experience of being able to you know help people and share in the um share in the experience and share in the you know the shitty times as well as the good but to me that just is another complicating factor that I just don't need to deal with. I don't need that shit in my life. (laughs) Ain't nobody got time for that. Emma says, Uh -uh. I love it. (laughs) I love your honesty. It's so great. It's refreshing. That's what it's great. If you're no one got sponsors, you're like, I'm a scientist. I got a job. I can say whatever the fuck I want. (laughs) Can't cancel me. That's that's probably Uh, why I ain't got no sponsors. (laughs) But are you trying to get any? Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think I think someone could sponsor you if they wanted to. Maybe after, uh, maybe this is the episode. Maybe this is the episode that gets you sponsored. I I feel like it could could happen. (laughs) They're not censoring me. No one's censoring me. Yeah. Well, Alexander Houchin got sponsors. So yeah, I agree with no censorship. I won't. I don't. I don't play that game. I've actually lost out on some sponsors you know, because of that, they wanted to have more control over, you know, they were like, well, who else are you going to be sponsored by? And, you know, who are you going to interview and all this stuff? I'm like, uh, uh-uh, no, <laughs> I didn't, you know, not that I'm like super successful, but I mean, whatever I have, I created by doing it, you know, my own way and not having anybody tell me how to do it. And the idea of somebody like coming in and having any type of like regulation over that sounds counter like to what I'm trying to do. You know what I'm saying? 
yeah, sure. That that's for that's for the people who want to subscribe to that model. But it, yeah, there there are fundamentally different models of of going about stuff. And if if your model is to just be honest and authentic, then you don't want to pollute that by third party control. Yes, no pollution of the Bikes for Death podcast or Emma Fluke's Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk uh, the Tassie's gift. We talked about it, you know, the first time. I believe uh, that was the end, the first year, 2019, or was it the second? No, that was right. So yeah, the first first year was November 2019. Right, and then COVID. So we didn't do Tassie, and no, then we, well, actually, we 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 did it. We did it every year, despite there being shut borders, so only locals could come, or you know, one state could attend. But you know, it happened every time because. It's nothing to do with me. It's none of my business if other people want to ride that. So, yeah, it's happened three times now. Okay, cool. Well, first, what is Tassie's gift? Just to remind people if they didn't hear the first episode. Um, and, and maybe like, you know, why did you, because this is your route, you created it. Um, you know, what were your goals with, you know, creating the route at large? So, um, Tassie gift is a... A bikepacking, an off-road bikepacking route around Tasmania, it kind of does a figure of eight out to the west coast and then to the east coast, but it starts and finishes in Hobart. Um, it's 1,800 kilometres and about 36,000 metres of climbing. Um, it's pretty rough terrain, I would say. It's certainly a, a bike with mountain bike tyres is the best type of bike for the route. I mean, I ride a hardtail everywhere. I'm not going to you know, school people on what they need to ride, but it's a mountain bike tire route. Um, and yeah, the, I tried to keep pretty quiet about being the person behind the route because it, it shouldn't matter who created a route. I just wanted there to be a route in the public domain, but that became impossible at some point because, you know, there's only so many people doing this kind of thing in Tassie. Um, but the reason I put it together was, I guess, I'm always out riding weird and wonderful places and seeing these incredible things. But there's really only, well, there's one major um, off-road bikepacking route in Tasmania, which is called the Tasmania Trail, and that runs from north to south of the state, so splits it straight down the middle. And I don't, I'm not particularly fond of that route. I don't think it's particularly exciting. It certainly doesn't take in what I consider to be the best aspects of, of riding in, in the state. And so... I mean, I guess I could just, you know, ride where I want to ride and, and not share any of that information. But I've never understood why people need to be given a route to go out and explore and, you know, um, see see places I wouldn't ordinarily go because I just, you know, dream up something every weekend and go off and do it. But it's something that I realise that a lot of people need. They need that formalised route that someone else has come up with and will vouch for and say, this is possible whether or not it's a good time is, you know, up to the individual. So, <laughs> so yeah, I just strung together a route which uh, is hard, but it's it's designed to be rideable, not you know a, a bush bash hiking route. Because I don't believe that's I don't believe in that unless you're aware that's what it's going to be. Um, so. Yeah, so or this, there's like this, a payoff. I mean, you know, if there's like a payoff for it, if like exactly. there's a reason, not just like just to be a sadist, but it's like, okay, there's going to be a big payoff for this one. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. So um, so my my goal for the route was for it to take in 
to visit some of the areas that I considered to be the, you know, the, the coolest places in Tassie, but it had to be a um, like a, a loop format to make it easy for people and also to exist as a, as a race or event. So you can't have out and backs because it just doesn't work in an event format. So, um, yeah, and I tried to moderate it so that it was difficult but not um, insurmountable. And if there were some pretty shitty bits, they had to exist for a very good reason because, as, as you say, I also don't agree with gratuitous shit riding or walking just for the sake of it. It's got to be there for a very good reason. And um, I guess I, I really enjoy putting together routes and, you know, I just enjoy maps and nerding out and stuff. And so it was kind of cool to piece together something over over a period of about, I don't know, six, six nine months. Um, and it has changed each year just a little bit because I'm just trying to, I'm, it's a constant pursuit of making it the best it possibly can be, but I'm honestly not sure if there's anything now that I would change. Um, sometimes I do need to tweak bits and pieces because a bridge will go down and it's never going to get repaired because Tasmanian forestry has no money um, or or land will become privatised or land is not privatised but someone has decided that they own it or, you know, some variation of the above. Um, and obviously I don't go out constantly and check all aspects of the route and maintain it, but it's now become this nice thing where there's a bit of a word of mouth. So if someone comes across something that's a bit sketchy, they might I might hear back about it and I can go check it out. Um, so anyone can ride the route at any time. Um, for a lot of people, it's a fairly big time undertaking because it's not fast riding. Like that 1800 Ks will take you, most people would take 12-ish days to do it and that's still fair hauling. Um, but what a lot of people are doing is they're picking up bits and pieces of it. So they might pick the Western Loop or the Eastern Loop and then they'll craft their own ride out of some of those sections and I just love seeing that happen because it means that people have got a way to link together bits of riding that they wouldn't have otherwise had the confidence to do I guess um, and it means there's, there's there's bikes out in parts of the state that you know generally don't get bikes and I just think that's awesome so it just makes me you know I get a lot of feel goods about hearing that there's people out there in the wild wild west you know experiencing some of the the shitty tracks that I've strung together and um yeah that's it exists because I love this place and I wanted to share with people some of the places that you know I think are the best the best parts yeah. of this state well I think that last statement really um you know really like showcases why you should make a route like this or why why is a why is a route needed like why can't somebody just go out and get lost well the value there is that you love the place and you've put in the time and the effort to get lost and you know to craft this and so now it's not just like lines on a map it's a labor of love that somebody's created and yeah there's some confidence that goes along with that but you're also getting to experience you know yeah, yeah, your labor of love, like your blood, sweat, and tears, your, you know, all those however many years and weekends and everything that it took to, you know, look at everything on a map. I mean, I know what it takes to create a route to some extent, not in Tassie, but it's like, it's a lot of work, you know? And so it is fun to get lost, but if I was going to, 
you know, I love one of my favorite things is just to kind of get lost or go exploring or just kind of see what you're going to find and not really have an agenda. I, I love the freedom of that style of riding. But if I was going to come to Tasmania, I'd be like, okay, what what's the route? You know, where do I want to, what do I want to see? You know? So yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of value there, you know? Yeah, sure. Exactly. And I, I, I recognize how lucky I am to, you know, I live here so I can go and just ride dead end forestry tracks that I know will definitely not go anywhere, but there might be something at the end of it, but you're not going to come in from interstate or overseas to, to just do that. You have to, unless you are, as we said, unemployed and you have all the time in the world, you, you have to, the, a route has to exist for you to make a commitment, a time and financial commitment to go somewhere. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I tend to, I've done not much riding or not much bikepacking on in mainland Australia, just because I have time constraints. And so when I do, do go over there, it's usually for a an event with a grand depart or whatever, just because there's someone's come up with a route, you know, we're all setting off. There's an excuse to, to ride with a sense of urgency. So I have to take less time off work and it's nice. It's self-contained. And, um, and with, with the Tassie gift, of course, people can come down for the grand depart, which happens in November, or they can just come and do it whenever they want. But Tassie is a place where you wouldn't always want to ride everywhere at every time of year. Um, it gets pretty, pretty grim in the middle of winter and in the middle of summer, it can get pretty, um, pretty prone to bushfires. So, you know, there's, there's certain also times snow. that are better than others. We do have I've snow. Seen snow. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, a lot of, yeah, you gotta be pretty spot on with when you're going in terms of, uh, probably the accessibility of the entire route. Huh? Yeah, sure. Like, I mean, snow would never, snow would never stop you riding any of it. And I, I did design the route to be weatherproofed. So theoretically you could ride it. I mean, apart from bushfires, obviously, you know, totally sweeping through an area, but, but um, I was talking but about, even, about heat, heat, you could, you know, that's a personal preference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, if we had flood conditions, it should still be okay because if there's any, if there's any, well, where there are rivers that you have to forward, they're ones that are not, you know, at the top of um, big catchments and that sort of thing, because the last thing I want is for someone to take off and then get, you know, isolated, stuck between two rivers because there's been, you know, flood conditions. And not that that's my responsibility, because if someone decided to to undertake a ride, it's got nothing to do with me. But if I can kind of proof a route against that sort of thing, then, you know, it takes some of the guesswork out of the equation. Yeah, I think, I mean... I think if you're going to publish a route, there has to be some uh, responsibility for saying, okay, this is a route, you know, it's, it, it's rideable, it's doable. You're probably not going to die. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You sure. Know, I mean, you avoid, you're avoiding the murder shanties that have, you know, are currently occupied, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay, no murder shanties on this part. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Look, if it's basically, I, I embed a bit of information in um, it's it's just a route and ride with GPS and I embed a bit of information, actually a lot of information just in the description there. And it's all very, you know, do you do your due diligence, blah, blah, blah. But um, it, yeah, it, it, it should be achievable by anyone who was prepared and had the time available to do it. Um, that being said, you know, there's no getting away from those, those numbers, those elevation figures and the slow terrain. But again, that's not, it's not gratuitously difficult. That's, that's just what riding is in Tassie. And, um, 
I have thought about this a bit on a on a scale of one to ten of riding difficulty. If one is groomed gravel roads and ten is the worst places that I would choose to take my bike and still do it again, I, I try and pitch I try and pitch the the gift to be on on balance about a five. And there's certainly some there's probably some there's some bits of seven maybe maybe straying into eight if it's really bad weather. But it's it's not it's not meant to be horrific it's just there's hills in tassie you know and it's you need to have good gearing and one one by gearing gravel bikes terrible idea if anyone's doing that you're doing it wrong <laughs> have people tried it with gravel bikes yeah so there's been um uh look it's i find it really difficult to define what you know what's a gravel bike versus a mountain bike with drop bars and a rigid fork you know but um there was a, a guy who rode it last year oh sorry last year yes last the last time it ran and he was um so he actually came in first and he was on he was on two two or 2.2 inch mountain bike tires and a drop bar bike so you could say oh it's a gravel bike but you know it's not really I think it's I think the head angle was was slacker than my my hardtail mountain bike you know there's so much crossover now um yeah I guess I was mostly when I think gravel I'm mostly thinking like tire size is really the you know, I mean, because you're right, it could be drop bar, it could be this geo, that geo, but it's like, you know, what size tire is appropriate? And then you can pick your, you know, the thing that sits on those tires. But, you know, yeah. is anyone riding this with like a, you know, a 38C tire is probably like no. out of their mind, you know? <laughs> no. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just the the comfort factor from like there's some really rocky terrain, but also with, with tires that that narrow you just wouldn't get up a lot of the climbs because we just you know we have steep gradients here steep gradients poor surfaces and you just can't let your tires down enough if you're running you know 38 40c tires because i know even with my um i run 2.35 rubber and i'm not i'm not a particularly strong rider but i'm also fairly light and there's sections where i let my tires down super low so i can just kind of squidge up hills and so yeah having having narrow tires would just cut cut through and slip and it would just be a nightmare you'd have to hate yourself basically could be done but you'd have to hate yourself <laughs> there's people out there that are going to take that as a challenge and come and oh, do look, it but you have to hate it. if you hate means. yourself that much yeah we'd yeah. love to watch you do it <laughs> yeah there's, there's always an either go ahead that's, that's right well there's there's no prizes for for what bike you do it on or if you come first or last or you know there's no prizes either way so you know, whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you happy and gives you the, the biggest sense of satisfaction, you know, you do you. Yeah. Amen. I agree with that. So I wanted to talk about your, uh, <clears throat> I, I think now I didn't know exactly, but, um, your personal 2021 attempt at, um, Tassie's gift, you, you had a serious, uh, medical condition at some point along the race. So I actually don't know the backstory. I didn't even know until we were talking that I didn't know if you were doing an ITT of the race. I, I actually didn't exactly know. So maybe you could kind of fill in the details. Yeah. So, um, so the, the event with, you know, Grand Depart has run three times now. Um, it's not the sort of route where you'd, well, I don't encourage people to do ITT attempts because it, it varies so much depending on what the weather's like. So each year has been radically different and, you know, days faster or days slower. So I, I think of each grander part as a self-contained thing. But for some reason I keep there's there's no reason why I need to be riding for the grander part to happen. But 
I don't know. I wish I wish people would carry it on their own, but it seems that they need a bit of you know rah rah motivation. So for some reason, I've um I've I've ridden it. Well, I've I've attempted to ride it three times in 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 its entirety at very very fast race pace or the fastest I can ride. So this latest one was um, November 2021, um, and I guess I was just I was just trying to ride the route the fastest that I thought that I could, which is quite strategic because it involves a ferry crossing that only, like a barge that only runs between 9am and 7pm. So, you know, you've got to sort of time things around that. And so I was trying a few different things, but basically I was on exactly the same um, time schedule as I had ridden the previous year, which was amazing weather. And it wasn't amazing weather this time around. We had some, um, some pretty big rains and headwinds and stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway, I was, uh, on day, oh, night, night four, so day five. Um, and I was expecting to finish in, in eight days. That was what I was on track for, but I was hoping to finish, you know, a few hours quicker than the first time or the previous year. And I basically just started getting really, um, sick to the stomach as I was climbing up, um, a very large hill. Fortunately, it was this, this, the sort of the sealed section of the route. So there's about a hundred Ks between, Queenstown and Derwent Bridge, which is on the west coast of Tassie. So it's quite an isolated area, but this was a major, you know, sealed road. Um, and I took off at about 1, 2 a.m. Um, and was just feeling a bit weird. Um, and that weirdness progressed to feeling feeling like I needed to vomit, but I couldn't vomit. And so I was just trying to make myself vomit the whole way up this massive climb and nothing was really happening. And then suddenly everything was happening. And so I became very, very, very sick, um, you know, like sick from both ends basically, but but in quite a, a dire way. Um, I had, I'm pretty savvy with the the drugs that I carry with me. I come from a medical family and I know what what the good stuff is. Um, and so I took, I took all the good stuff, which would ordinarily, um, if, if you've ever had travel medicine, it's the um, they talk about gastro bombs that'll just block you up if you've got to get get a flight. It's the sort of stuff they prescribe for for military use if you've just got to get out of somewhere. Took that cocktail, nothing, wasn't doing anything, and um, and I just couldn't, you know, I, I needed, I knew that water was a big thing, um, and there were no because I was on like a, a road in really dense bushland. I was just having to scoop water out of the drainage ditches where there were, you know, dead animals and stuff. But I figured that was the least of my worry. I just needed to, because water was going in, water was coming straight out. And um, were you filtering it or anything, yeah, or were you just what's, drinking? What's it? the point? What's the point? Yeah, you know, at that I point, need, you're like, whatever yeah. this is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like that was so you, that was the yeah. least of my worries. That was future. It spe- but it speaks to the severity of kind of where you're at in your mindset. You're just like yeah. drinking dead animal yeah, look, water. I knew I knew that um, as far as immediate safety, I knew I needed to get to somewhere where I had a source of fresh water and also a source of like being indoors basically because although it was quite mild weather, I mean, the, the sun had started to come up and it was fairly mild, but I was shivering violently but sweating and I was in so much joint, like joint pain, all over pain, but I was still having to climb up the side of this fucking mountain because you know, I had to get out of there to civilization. Um, thankfully, I, I mean, I always carry a, a satellite communication device on me. There was never any, never any serious consideration for do I need to, you know, trigger an evac here. 
but I was very grateful to have that. And so I could at least send a message home and say, hey, I'm not sure if you're watching my dot, but I'm in a bit of strife and, you know, don't call in the cavalry if I'm taking five hours to travel a K. Um, but, yeah, I basically just, I, I didn't know what had gone wrong. Um, I was I was fatigued and I was pushing the limits, but also I'm so used to that with my body and I wasn't pushing things any more than I've done, you know, 100 times over. Um, and I was just so, so, so sick and in so much pain. And I think I, I think I worked out, I stopped about 130 times in a 11 kilometer stretch, which was downhill. I was rolling downhill by this stage. I got up the side of the mountain, was rolling downhill into this um, town settlement. And it was just, it was so grim. You know, you don't need me to describe that, but um, I eventually got into this, this area and um, was able to sort out somewhere safe to hole up. And once I was uh, horizontal and stationary, you know, not moving, um, things started to subside after probably a couple of hours. They started to slow down. So I knew that I was going to be all right. Um, but I think if I was having to keep traveling, you know, keep moving, keep pedaling, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have slowed down. I don't know. But, um, yeah, basically I just, long story short is I just got terribly, terribly sick, you know, gastro type sick, um, not really sure what caused it. I, I came home and I got a heap of tests. I got, you know, blood tests and, you know, stool samples and all the, the nasty stuff, but they couldn't they couldn't grow anything. I didn't even get sick from the, the ditch water with all the roadkill. So clearly, clearly your, my yeah, immune, your system, immune system is working. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little and, hit or but, miss, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, the main concern for me was um, I, I was really worried that something sinister had happened physiologically and I couldn't because I didn't I thought yeah you know sure I could have picked up I could have had bad water a few days ago I I could have eaten something bad but I'm pretty pretty careful with what I eat um I couldn't I couldn't figure out anything in particular that would be a culprit but I know that stuff happens you know common things are common but what I was worried about was if something had gone wrong with you know my organs, something had, you know, triggered. Um, but yeah, bloods were fine and, you know, they couldn't find anything wrong with me. They said, you know, you're dehydrated, but you're healthy and cool, you know, go, go do your thing. So it was, I guess it was all's well that ends well. And, um, so I basically I terminated my, you know, ride there because I could have, I could have hung out for probably, I would have had to have stayed a full 24 hours where I was before I felt comfortable going back into the middle of nowhere without that being a stupid idea. And for me, you know, this is my home state. I can ride, I've got nothing to prove. I can ride the route anytime I like. And, you know, I I only ride that route now to ride it the way I want to ride it. And, you know, there'd been that there'd been a, a bit of a speed bump there. Um, and I'm very, I'm grateful to have had that experience because basically you know, my, my systems work, my risk matrix went into action. And basically the way I think about anything I do with my, my writing is there's, there's certain spares I do and don't carry. There's drugs I do and don't carry. You know, my first aid is pretty pared back, but that's based on calculated risks. I, um, I take based on, um, informal risk assessments, I guess. And for me, the, you know, gastro stuff can be very, very serious if you can't keep water down essentially. And, that's why I carry good drugs for that. And that's my um, that's my mitigation strategy. And the moment those drugs did nothing, 
for me, that was no. This this risk has become unacceptable, and it's time to pull the pin. So, you know, that's that's what I did. And if I if I had really needed to be pulled out of there, I had a communication device that I could have you know deployed. And yeah, but it's every every time shit goes wrong, I think it's a it's a pretty important learning experience. And yeah, that's what it was for me. You uh, you recorded some uh, videos that you posted to your Instagram stories that like when I watched them were pretty scary. Like I was very scared for you. You seemed worried. You were obviously like, I mean, you were recording this stuff in the midst of all this going on. I was actually curious, like, when did you record that? Was it when you finally got horizontal and kind of, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't recording stuff until I, I had got myself out of there. There was, I was in no state to be, you know, documenting oh, I feel like I'm dying. Look at me. You know, I, it was only when I was safe. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to achieve anything. I wasn't putting on any drama. I was just in, I was really concerned. I was in a lot of pain, but I knew that I was going to be okay by that point. Um, I wasn't so sure of that earlier. Um, but it was, you know, I've been, I've been pretty sick from that sort of stuff in, you know, in my life. I've traveled a lot through Southeast Asia. I've I've been exposed to some pretty nasty stuff. And, and I know the difference between bad, you know, f- food poisoning, bacterial, viral infections. Well, I can't say I know the difference because that's probably exactly what I had. But this was this was unlike anything I'd experienced. And I, I have been pretty sick from various, you know, Southeast Asian superbugs and eating raw pig and all that sort of stuff. So for me to say that this is the worst by far the worst, um, the most sick I've ever been of that type in my life is is reasonably significant. And, you know, I'm not a hero, but uh, I'm fairly <laughs> stoic when it comes to that sort of thing. Like, like I don't, I'm not a hero, but I play one on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, what I mean by that is though, like I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah I, I'm i pretty stoic with that sort of thing. And You're, was, you're analytical. You're, you're taking assessment of what's going on. You're, yeah, calculating the risk, that kind of thing, like using yeah, your knowledge that you have. Well, I just also don't like I've got a pretty pretty high pain threshold and I'm not fussed about being violently ill. You know, that conceptually it doesn't bother me. I don't I, I know that yeah, analytically, as long as you can keep keep some water down, everything passes. You don't die of starvation in three days. You know, you don't die of having fever as long as you're keeping water down. But there was just a lot going on that one, I couldn't explain it, two, I couldn't stop it with medicine. Um, and that's when it became scary for me because the the strategies that I had in place that would usually and have in the past always at least, um, you know, facilitated subduing that sort of thing were doing absolutely nothing. And, and that was very, very odd. That was unusual for medically, that was unusual for, for you know, drugs to have had no effect. Um, and, you know, I did, I spoke to um, a GP about it quite a bit. My sister's actually a doctor as well. well. Sorry, she is a doctor. And I spoke to her a bit. I'm not I'm not a medical doctor anyone, so don't, don't think that. Um, but I spoke to her about some various things because it kind of didn't add up for what you'd usually expect to happen. And the what I, what we kind of rationalized is that when when you're doing um ultra endurance sports and you're really pushing the limits, you get um, what's called ischemic gut, where basically your 
um, blood, your circulation to your uh, your guts is reduced because it's going into your muscles and you know you're doing activity, and that can cause um, digestive issues um, because your food's not breaking down, you know, because you don't have uh, blood in your intestines. And for for people like marathon runners, they can sometimes get big problems where they get um, death of sections of their their gut because there's no blood supply. Now there was nothing like that going on. Um, and, you know, honestly, I just don't push it that hard, like I'm just happening along. But there's no question that your, your gut is over a period of, you know, a week, week and a half starved of blood. And I wonder if I'd picked up a, um, a bacterial infection somewhere along the way because, you know, you're in the middle of the environment and there's stuff everywhere. I wonder if I'd picked something up and it had been festering away, colonising my, my guts for a few days and, my body didn't detect it until I had quite a high load of this, you know, bacterial colonization because it seemed like it was such a sudden onset, so intense. And usually, usually if you pick something up, you'll get sick within sort of 12, 18 hours. Um, and I, I, I kind of wonder if it was like the the alarm system and security lights were off in my guts because there was just no blood going through there. And so by the time my body did detect there was something wrong, it went really wrong in a really big way. Um, but, you know, that's just me trying to be scientific about it and and figure out why it was so different to anything else I've experienced. But I don't have any, um you know, learnings to impart about that, but it was a very <laughs> horrible experience and one I do not wish upon my worst enemy. It it looked rough and I, I definitely felt empathetic for you. But, you know, how how lucky am I that I was in Tassie, you know, in my home state? <laughs> so lucky you're just like puking and shitting your brains out and you're like but at least i'm in tassie and things are good <laughs> that's the perspective you need do you do you i mean my only thought would just be like you know experiencing that while you're already fatigued and you're you know your you know maybe immune system is is weaker because you know you're exhausted and and so you know maybe maybe it like snuck up in in that way yeah, look, it's it's really hard to know. And because no one, you know, modern medicine doesn't look at people doing that sort of thing to their body as as an example of how something will manifest because it's such a niche thing. You know, there's there are certain there are certain conditions that are described in ultra endurance sports, but they're different again because they're usually they're usually not quite so long and you know, you're not usually sleeping in a ditch, drinking ditch water, you know, eating <laughs> eating a stick of salami that you picked up four days ago that was probably, you know, two years out of date or whatever. It, they're usually a little bit more controlled than that. They, they, they're more intense activity. You know, these are world champion ultra endurance runners or whatever, but it's less kind of dirty than bikepacking is. So, you know, it it could be any, any number of things. But, yeah, the only thing that I could um, – you know, check off medically was that there was nothing that they could detect in, in, um, you know, blood and stool sampling and stuff. So, you know, in the clear medically and, and that you was want to the- be a bike packer. Shit's going <laughs> to happen. You know, I mean, it's not yeah. always, uh, sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. I just think it's, it's important for, for everyone to carry drugs, whether or not you usually take drugs, this is pharmaceutical drugs in, in your normal life. It's it's a really important part of um, you know risk mitigation and and dealing with with things that do go wrong when you're out in the field. Um, 
because of my entire first aid kit, which is pretty meager to be honest, but I've only ever used band-aids and drugs. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing else that 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 I've needed to use. And um yeah, dr- drugs exist for a reason. Speaking of drugs, um <laughs> what uh what would you what what I mean I'm I do not come from a medical background and I would say I'm fairly uneducated. I mean and, and you're not a doctor, but what do you carry? What would you recommend maybe someone consider carrying? Um so I think it's important to carry um I'm probably going to use Australian. I'm trying to avoid brand names here because it'll be Australian. But um, so pain relief and also non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So in Australia, that's like Panadol and Nurofen or Voltaren. Um, because if you do get, that's not to make you feel better, but if you do have, you know, a crash or something goes a bit wrong with your biomechanics, you want to try and um control your pain and inflammation so that you can keep your body doing what it's meant to do on a bike if you're going to have to pedal a long way. But as far as other fun things, you've got to have some sort of anti-nausea, anti-gastro medication um, sold under all sorts of brand names. There's prescription or or over-the-counter stuff, but um, generally the prescription stuff that you get from a travel doctor is pretty good because that's intended to deal with some, some fairly heavy stuff to just, you know, get you on a plane and get out of there. Um, antibiotics, I think is you're crazy to not carry, um, oral antibiotics. So I carry, um, I carry two types. I carry a type for, if I had some sort of, you know, skin infection, well, if I had a wound and it was a skin based, um, you know, something, because it's all very well to carry creams, but geez, if you have, if you have something that approaches blood poisoning, you want to treat that pretty quick. Um, but also, for the ladies out there, it's worth having an antibiotic that is um, to treat UTIs, urinary tract infections. Um, I've never had one while I've been bikepacking, but it's a perfect breeding ground for that sort of thing. And that can get really serious. You know, you can go into kidney failure from a UTI, and you don't. You're crazy to not to not have um, strategies to mitigate that. But I don't carry anything else on top of that. Um, some of them are over the counter, some are prescription only. But you know, you get it once and who cares if it's out of date? Most stuff's fine. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to carry probably a suture and, um, uh, you know, for stuff or like a bo- broken bone or something, you're like more trying to treat like things that are going to be going on in your body. And it sounds like some scrapes and stuff along the way. Um, but yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 We're going to talk about your elbow. Your elbow is yeah. definitely going to make, make the show. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, for, for me, I, I carry, um, for my first aid kit, it's, it's stuff that would allow me to continue riding because that's my main goal. You know, if I've, if I've done something that is going to stop me riding, then I need to get pulled out of there. So whether that's phone a friend, get public transport, or if it's really bad, you know, that's what your, your SOS is for. If you, if you break your leg or you're bleeding out, you're not going to try and do your at-home sutures. You know, you're going to put your <laughs> you're going to put your tourniquet or your compression bandage on, and you know, yeah. SOS that. You you don't actually live in the murder shanty. You can call somebody and go to a hospital. <laughs> That's right. I'm you not like doing visit, anything illegal. But... I'm not on the run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she swears. Um, the FBI is going to call me after this call, and we're going to find out the truth. Uh, so. Let's talk about your next fun ad- adventure. Um, we're running out of time. It goes by so fast. Ghost the ghost ship ride. The ghost ship ride. 
Um, first of all, like what I, I didn't quite understand, like you're chasing a real ship that's named ghost or it's, it doesn't actually exist. Like what, what, what were you doing? All right. So I'll try and make this short. Um, okay. The first <laughs> we're time not, I, went, I mean, we, <laughs> it's all right. I don't know. I don't have work. It's fine. Um, the, the first, uh, the first time I basically went bikepacking was in, in 2018. I did a, a ride called race to the rock and that, um, was three and a half thousand kilometers across Australia. So it was a fairly big undertaking when you're just starting off bikepacking. Um, but that started in Tasmania, um, Cockle Creek, which is the southernmost road in Australia, and it went to the north of the state. And basically we had to make our own way um, from the end of the Tasmanian route to the mainland. And back then in it was held in September and it was crazy weather and it was all snowing and it was pretty scary. And the whole concept of sleeping in the snow given that I'd not slept outdoors and not used any of my gear and had just strapped it on a bike, it was pretty daunting. So I just rode the whole lot in one go, which was 510 kilometres. And it, for me, it was a 43-hour ride. I just rode nonstop because it was easier than the alternative. Um, and you could get a plane or you could get a ferry. I have to stop you. You've heard the term, I just thought about this, you, you pack your fears. You've heard that before? Yeah, yeah. You you took the opposite approach. You're like, I'm too I don't know anything about stopping or you know all of that. So I'm gonna just pack nothing and just go. Is that well, kind of the inverse approach? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I do know how to do is pedal a bike. What I don't what I didn't then know how to do was manage my shit, you know, sleep, dress appropriately and stuff. So I just made sure I had the right gear on the bike to not die. And the safest thing to do seemed to be to keep riding. So that's what I did back then. Um, All right, continue. That was <laughs> funny though. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we had the option of catching a plane which left at 6 a.m. or um, there was a boat that leaves at 7.30 p.m. Um, every day. And back in 2018, I arrived at about 1.30 in the morning and so I'd missed that night's boat. I could have got on a plane, but for me, that trip, I wanted to do it my way, although it was theoretically a race. I didn't, you know, couldn't care less. So I waited till the following night to catch the, the boat because it just felt right for me to wheel my bike on and go. But I have since wondered whether knowing what I do now, which is how to sleep outdoors and, you know, what the fuck I'm doing. Um, yeah, I have learned how to manage some of your systems and yeah. Yeah. Stuff. And, and I've refined the gear that I carry and, you know, I don't stop a hundred times to change clothes. You I basically just, wanted to pit like 2018 you versus 2022 you it's basically right. You're yeah, like, yeah, basically. I want to so do over. There's, there's no, like I'm a lot, I'm a lot slower and less, you know, speed fit on a bike, but I guess I'm also more, you know, used to just putting my body through that sort of stuff. So yeah, I was, I was pitting, pitting myself against myself. So I only planned this, you know, three days beforehand. I just took, took one day off work to make a long weekend of it and uh, put my bike on a bus and went down to the southernmost extent of the state and camped out overnight there. And I got going on this same route at exactly the same time, which was 6.22 a.m., um, got rolling and I just wanted to see if theoretically I could have made this boat to catch the ferry for that night sailing, which meant um, 
once I factored in the time it would take to get to the boat and the boarding time and all that sort of stuff, it meant that I had to do this ride in under 36 hours. Um, it's like so, nine hours faster uh, or seven hours? Seven hours. Seven hours. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, granted it was definitely much better weather, um, but, you know, seven hours is a, like I was no slouch back then on a bike. Um, and, yeah, so I just went for a bit of a bit of a cruise, um, you know, did what I do. Some stuff happened along the way. Spoiler alert, I didn't make the ferry, but I was only about an hour behind. It was still in dock when I arrived, but the point was I, had, I would have missed the boarding and blah, blah, blah. But what was pretty cool is um, I, you know, I wasn't destroyed by the end of it because my body's used to doing this sort of thing now. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, cool. I've just been riding for um, 37 hours, but I'm fine. So, you know, I went to bed and then the plan was for me to actually ride home after that. But um, as I'm sure we'll touch on, I had a bit of a bit of a bingle along the way and I, I needed to get checked out medically. So um, a bingle. <laughs> I love yeah. it's I love the terminology. It's so good. It's so much fun to hear other uh yeah, the way people communicate and use language. Um yeah, I mean I let yeah, let's let's definitely talk about it. You, you said on Instagram it was all going well until it wasn't. And uh while you're telling this story, um what the fuck is a wombat? Really? Oh man. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've heard of a wombat. I have like I, I've heard that word before, but I don't know what a wombat is for sure. So okay, so so what what happened? Uh, or, yeah, or yeah, how tell it however you want to. I'll explain what a wombat is first. So a wombat is um a, a cute furry Australian animal. It's kind of like if you took a potato that weighed. 40 kilos and you put tiny little legs on it and so it was this big fat chunky fluffy thing that just you know cruises around on four legs um and they eat grass and stuff like that um but they're very solid little cows like very small cows tiny tiny cows yeah they're very tiny cows they've actually got like bony plates in their ass so they lay square poos because of the way their ass plates are structured. But their defense mechanism is they'll turn their ass towards you because they're so solid. <laughs> so that's that's literally their defense. And nothing, So that plays into your story, maybe? <laughs> yeah, possibly. So nothing fucks with a wombat because I'm gonna Google it while you're talking. Oh, I, yeah. I, I could all right, wombat. They're right, very cute. Ahead. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> quite adorable. Yeah. But they can Oh also- my gosh. It's like a little it's actually more like a little bear, like a little koala bear or something. Yeah. They can run 25 miles an hour. Yeah. So and they weigh between 44 to 77 pounds. Okay. Wow. All right. Now we know what a wombat is. Yeah, good, Great. good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got a heap of wildlife in Tasmania and riding through the night in Tassie is by far, by far the most dangerous thing I do with riding is avoiding wildlife because, yeah. You know, there is just so much. Anyway, so I was especially um, like at night in the evening time and stuff, a lot more active. And oh, is that yeah? Yeah, I think probably un- unless you live in an area with a lot of wildlife, just people people won't fathom what it's like. But so to put it in perspective, this particular night, I'll get to the story in a second. But this particular night, throughout the night, I would have. I, I, so I run non-dynamo lights and I keep them quite dim so I'm just looking at the road immediately ahead of me. So I don't see a lot of what's going on outside that vision, but I never wear headphones at night so I can listen to wildlife. I saw 
over a hundred wombats, probably about two thousand wallabies, kangaroos, and probably about five thousand possums. And that's not—I'm not being hyperbolic. Anyone who lives in a wildlife area would know that when the wildlife goes, it just there's some nights where you just get a phenomenal density of wildlife out and about just cruising. Don't know why, um, but full yeah. moon. It wasn't though. It was just. You know, maybe it was a mild night. I don't know. You know, yeah, it could be temperature related. If yeah, yeah, but or um, if it was hot during the day, they might be more active at night. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Yeah. But I mean, those are the kinds of things that, like, as an outdoors person, I try to think about and just kind of like, huh, you know, I don't always have answers, but I, it's, it's, I, I enjoy trying to understand like what's going on around you. I guess. Yeah, for but sure. You like? I totally. What, yeah. It's, yeah. It sounds, what you're describing sounds absolutely, um, like, honestly, like, super cool and interesting, but also pretty crazy, like, because uh, yeah. kangaroos are, are big animals, and you said, like, 2,000? Yeah, yeah. Well, so we have, like, we have wallabies, crazy. which are, like, little kangaroos. We do have kangaroos as well, um, but the thing is, they get, wallabies are probably the worst. They get really disorientated by your lights, and if they were just on the road or hopping across the road, it'd be fine. But what they do is they'll come out in front of you and change direction. Um, and yeah, well, so that brings me to the the wombat story. Um, I was okay. I was about two hundred k's in. It was still daylight, but it was you know coming on dusk. Um, so I had I didn't have my lights on or anything because it was daylight. I had perfect vision. I was on this big, big wide gravel road. I was probably doing about thirty five k an hour. Um, and this wombat comes charging out from the side of the road. And usually they're not on the run. Usually it'll just be sort of, you know, screwing around on the side of the road. Saw it coming, no problems, no chance of stopping, but I went to go behind it, no issues. And then he's done the skid and the 180 and comes straight back in front of me. And there was nowhere I could go. I've just hit this, you know, 40 kilo potato um, at, I don't know, 30 k's an hour, gone over the bars. Um, the bike's just, you know, done a somersault. Thankfully, I wasn't on you know I wasn't on a really steep rocky slope I was on a gravel road but the bikes just landed upside down mountain bikes are pretty good with dealing with that sort of thing but everything twisted you know I had TT bars on I had full gear on because although I wasn't planning on sleeping I was you know emulating 2018 um and so just all my bits and pieces twisted my front wheel twisted stem bolts you know everything but I also I came down pretty hard on my um but the left-hand side of my body, so I had this big hematoma on my hip, sorry, right-hand side of my body, big hematoma on my hip, and I split my elbow open, and I was fine. I was like, oh, okay, cool, you know, being here, done that before. Um, and I was a bit of blood, but you I just... referenced the other part of the conversation where you <laughs> talked about your high threshold for pain. <laughs> uh, so I just, um, I just pulled on arm and leg warmers to cover up the exposed flesh and you know, keep, keep the worst of the dust out. I gave it a bit of a squirt with my water bottle and carried on, you know, no big deal. Um, but later that night, um, it's around midnight, I noticed that I was bleeding through my puffer jacket. It was still coming out of my elbow. And so I thought, oh, I better patch this up. And I actually took everything off and saw that this was probably a, definitely a stitches job, but, you know, I wasn't going to die from it. So I just um, stuck some steri strips on and, and put a, um, like a tubular bandage on and, and kept going. But then all the next. Now, steri, steri strip, that's like a, that's like a clear band aid kind of thing. What, what is that exactly? Um, 
Because I, I, I thought that might be something else you should recommend to people to carry, it sounds like. Oh, oh look, that's really that's really basic first aid stuff. I'm not sure what it's called in the States, sorry, but they're just little strips, adhesive strips that you use um, oh, to close a wound. To, like, keep it together. Yeah. It's like a – I think we call it, like, a butterfly. Um, yeah, it sounds – Anyway, yeah. okay. Just, just an adhesive strip and you just well, – Whatever you need to, to, like, hold together a fairly minor wound that you're not going to die of to stop the bleeding and yeah, that so, kind of stuff. Yeah, so, sure. So, whenever you, whenever you should have stitches – but you are not getting stitches. That's what Steri-Strips are good for. Super glue is also good, and I do carry super glue, but I knew I was going to have to get this cleaned out because um, you can just glue an open wound, um, but there was still a fair Explain bit of – Explain that, please. <laughs> well, <laughs> it doesn't – it's fine. Like you can you can just put super glue in a, you know, a, a gash um, and that will – you can close up your flesh with super glue. That's – that's a thing that okay. So you can't eat it, but you can totally just put it on a flesh. Yeah, wound. yeah, it's okay. Um, the only issue is obviously if you've got you know locked in bacteria or something. Yeah. So at, at hospitals, they I imagine they've got solvents, so they can dissolve all of that. But if you know that you're going to get it cleaned out later anyway, much better to just use steri strips. Super glue would be more if you know you're really worried about. Well, not if you're worried about blood loss, because hopefully you're not going to keep riding 300 k's. But you know, if if things are a bit more dire and you can't close it with steri strips, you can just put super glue on on wounds. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but it wasn't. So that would be a multi-use tool, or you know, asset or whatever in your bag of tricks. Yeah. Because super glue could obviously be used in quite a few different ways. So. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I, I carried in my um my tire repair kit because. I hope that that's what I'll be using it for, but you know, right. who knows? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't that you don't want to put it in your medical kit. That's a bad omen. You want to put it in your tire kit for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, so so yeah, basically, I just kept kept going with this ride, and um, I was pretty sore the next day, and I was sort of doing a lot of my descending one handed because on the rough stuff my elbow kept splitting open um, because on mountain bike bars you're in that sort of flex position and I could, yeah, I could feel it and see it just kept sort of gaping open a bit. But, you know, it was fine. Um, and so finished that ride off. And so for my personal goal for meeting this hypothetical ship, I was, you know, and I think it was an hour, 14 minutes outside that. And there's no question in my mind that if I hadn't run into a wombat and had to fix my bike and fix myself and then the subsequent, you know, slower riding, I could have made that. But, you know, I've got nothing to prove. It was just a fun thing I decided to do one weekend. Um, and, yeah, so I felt I felt pretty good about another shit thing happened and it was no big deal and, you know, got home safely. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I was. that's true. I was planning that's, to. That's the more important thing uh, on anything like this. It shouldn't be, I don't know. I mean, other people maybe do it for a time, but I think from my perspective, the real value is like, what did you learn? How did you grow as a person? You know, like that's the way more interesting approach to bikepacking and the outdoors is like watching kind of like as you grow in real time. Oh, you know? for sure. Yeah. You know, and when people, when people throw the towel in because, Sorry, that's when people stop what they're doing because uh, things no, don't. I know that expression. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I know that one. <laughs> because things aren't going their way or things didn't, you know, turn out as they'd hoped. I think you're really, um, you're, you're losing a really great opportunity to, to yeah, to, to learn and grow and, um, and adapt to situations there because 
you know, it's a, I guess it's a bit of a metaphor for life. Stuff doesn't always go your way. And if you, if you quit um, every time stuff doesn't turn out how you were expecting, then you're never going to learn, you know, you're never yeah. going to, you're never going to adapt as a person. And uh, yeah. So just, just deal with, deal with things when they go wrong and, um, and learn, learn for next time. And if that means changing your first aid kit or, you know, having, having better lights if you hit something at night because you had poor lighting or I don't know, you know, learning to or bunny knowing hop that <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that you're, the other aspect is the mental knowledge of like, okay, I'm tough enough to do that. Or, you know, all of them, even when you were sick, you know, you know yes, it was a shitty situation, pun intended, <laughs> but, uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can like walk away from that and say, okay, but I can be proud of the fact or acknowledge the fact that I was able to, you know, work my way through that problem. Um, and, you know, and, and that's what you did. You worked your way through the problem, you solved that problem. And now you kind of have that in your, in your piggy bank and you're like, okay, I have that experience. And unfortunate, if I came across it again, you kind of know, you're, you're more prepared, you know, like all those things are, are the fun part to me is like you're, you're learning. It's such a dynamic thing that you're like learning all the, um, maybe like technical aspects of having to fix your bike on the trail or how to camp or how to, you know, ride better. And then also like all the, you know, mental and emotional things that you're also going through. It's quite dynamic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I th and I think that's why it's such a, such a, you know, great activity. If you have a really short attention span, um, you find yes, it difficult to focus because there's, there's yes. so much going on. It's awesome. <laughs> I think that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Um, okay. So you, I, one thing on your magic ferry boat ride, you <laughs> said you keep calling it a, a theore theoretical boat. So whenever you did it this year, there wasn't actually a boat you could get on, but you were just trying to adhere by the, the, the time or the, well, there was Spirit a boat. I mean, the same boat was there. There was a boat. But oh, I, didn't, okay. I didn't plan to to get on that and then ride to Uluru like I did in 2018. Oh, okay. What was your plan instead? To ride home? or to, ride home. Yeah, I was just taking just a four-day weekend, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, um, that's fine. But, yeah, I didn't end up – I knew that I was going to have to get this wound cleaned out and there was only – I was at a, in a place called Devonport, which is a pretty rough corner of the world, and there's a – one after hours hospital, but I knew it was going to be probably Saturday night, pretty, pretty rough going, waiting in emergency there, given that I'd not slept. So I just decided, no, nah, I'm just going to make my way home the next day um, and just go to a medical center at home and get, get it all cleaned out. And uh, by that stage, it was too late to stitch it anyway, because, you know, I'd left it two days before I came in. I mean, it's like, your oh, freaking yeah, elbow. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, they <laughs> gave me antibiotics, but I was like, nah, no one's got time for that. <laughs> Plus, I mean, what it does to your gut microbiome, I, you know, obviously stay yeah. away from that if you can. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for growing all the best, you know, flora and, you know, all, I'm all for being more resilient through not, through not treating things. If you can. Yeah. If you're, it's not going to kill you and it makes you stronger. Yeah. yeah sure. Not? I don't know. Um, okay. And then I'm trying to wrap this up. That's all right. I'll just send a text to my boss if I'm going to be late. I'm not going to get fired. <laughs> six, six days later, you did another thing. So you're, you know, fresh off this adventure that had a little mishap. Um, and certainly you couldn't be like super fresh, but is that right? About six days later? 
Yeah, like these days my like my body's so used to the stupid shit that I do to it, even if I do an all-out, you know, balls-to-the-wall effort not sleeping, it only takes about sort of 36 hours before I'm pretty much back to normal. You know, I'm not going to go set crit records, but I'm not going to do that anyway. So, um, But so, your yeah. approach to cycling, I know from following you in the last, it was more like the slow and steady, just go, 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 not well, like super... Like you don't stop essentially, you know, other yeah, people. It's, it's not a, it's not a strategy. It's just the way my physiology right. works. Like I'm not it's a, just who you are. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not faster and I'm not explosive and I don't need to stop. So I don't. Um, and I think if I were a, so, so guys and girls who are very fast dynamic riders, they tend to have to rest for longer. Um, and so there are people who devise some of the, um, you know, pro bikepacking races do have different strategies around sleep and speed. For me, it's not a strategy. It's just I I do the best I can, which happens to be not being particularly fast and not stopping very much. And it's kind of cool because it's it's a real leveler. I can be a lot slower than people I'm riding around and my, you know, speed over ground over many days is actually not not very different because of the brake thing. And that's that's just a cool thing. But um yeah, so I went over to the mainland, the big island, um, the next weekend. Um a there was a mystery, mystery event from a mystery organizer who I actually know, but we won't mention that. Um a new a new bikepacking race called uh Gary Word Wonderland, which is in the Grampians region, which is a beautiful part of Victoria, um, all through National Park. It was a quite a short route. It was only 370 kilometres. I didn't do any research about it. I just knew it was an off-road route. Um, would be heaps of fun, beautiful area. So I just rocked up with my bike and caught a few, you know, planes, trains, et cetera, to get there and did all my um, my route preparation study on the train um, and rode this, you know, I guess it's a race. We're all tracking, riding as fast as we possibly could. Um, and that was a bloody hard race that was it was gnarly like proper mountain bike terrain um which was awesome but mostly mostly off-road races are a mix of you know there's some gnarly bits there's some seal bits there's gravel roads but this was the sort of terrain where I would have much rather having you know my, my dual suspension slacker mountain bike um and I could have got away with that because I wasn't having to carry bags anyway because of the length of it but yeah, it was it was awesome because was I had that a, was that a lack of uh preparation of going in, like not yeah. having the right bike? No, I, no, I only you, ever you, ride my you one took bike. Little rocket. Yeah. Little rocket. Yeah, is that always. Right? <laughs> yeah. My um my mount my Julie is pretty old and pretty shit to be honest. Um, but Okay. There there, there would have been a better bike for it. But yeah, I just take my, my little hardtail everywhere. Um it's the bike I ride, I love it. You know, it sometimes it's the best tool for the job, sometimes it's not, and you know, it doesn't really matter either way to me. Um, but yeah, yeah. So this was this was a very. Uh, I don't care about having a bike that's like good at ever. Like I don't know. I'd rather have like yeah, a bike that it might not always be the right tool, but I, I just hop on it. It's everything fits. You know how it all works, and it doesn't. I don't need it to be like fast here and you know it's like i don't really care yeah, <laughs> yeah sure like i mean it's you know unless you're unless you're a sponsored rider and your um you know your food stamps depend on your results then whatever just yeah yeah that's a good good run, way to say it run what you brung as they say 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so this was a, a very, very low-key event that only um, only sort of popped up on Instagram about four weeks prior and it was just a sort of a word of mouth thing. Anyone could turn up, anyone could do it, but there wasn't a lot of information about it and, um, and of course, it was free and that's what I that's what I love about bikepacking events, races, when it's just, you know, something that appears somewhere, do your own research, turn up, you don't know who's going to be there, there might be no one else there, but, you know, it's it's a thing that someone puts out there, you know it's been their labour of love in putting a route together and it was a cracker of a route, it was, it was awesome, um, but it was it was the hardest, like toughest per kilometre route that I've done in a race format it, it was no you know I, I ride some pretty cool stuff in Tassie for, for fun on my weekends so it wasn't challenging from that perspective but in a race format it's it's pretty tough to have just constant nah right yeah unrelenting you don't get yeah. any breaks yeah yeah and I did a lot of there was a lot of walking up, like hyper bike uphill because it was just you know just a bit too gnarly or you know legs are cooked or whatever and then I get to the top of a hill and look down this you know 500 meter descent of boulder field shit and then I walk half of it downhill so you know it was it's kind of a I'm glad that I've ridden lots of crappy places in Tasmania because it's um it's taught me patience so when stuff like that happens now I'm like okay you know my feet are the best tool for the job now because right. you know, two three years ago Switching that would have really upset me <laughs> yeah, you got to use use all your tools. Any uh, any wombats, deadly diseases, or ac- accidents uh, on this on this event? No, no. Look, I, I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely am your comeback pretty, tour. <laughs> I am pretty um, cautious, particularly when you know when I'm I was interstate. I didn't have anyone I could call on to come pick me up, um, and. I didn't know the area. I didn't know what access, like bailouts, would be like because I hadn't done any any due diligence with the route. So I was just going, okay, this is the route I'm following. I need to get myself and my bike safely through here. And that's why, you know, I probably walked some descents that I may have otherwise ridden if it was somewhere closer to home. But it's all part of that risk matrix I mentioned earlier. You know, you've you want to get yourself safely home, um, and whatever that looks like for you. Like I'm sure that there were some some guys with with very good technical skills who were riding who I have no doubt were riding all the stuff that I was walking, but it's none of my business what anyone else is doing. Um, I just yeah, need to cares? do the stuff that keeps me safe. Yeah. So it's fucking it was actually, solo self supported. It doesn't matter what yeah. anybody else is doing. You know, it's it, it that's yeah. the whole thing. It is solo. It's like your own journey. I think. You know. Yeah. But what I did notice is, um, so it was a full moon. It was absolutely amazing because I was turning my lights off whenever I could and just getting a, because I was a bit upset to be missing some of the the amazing scenery. I had a bit of a, um, a think before I took off as to whether I wanted to stop all night and be able to see the whole thing and experience the whole area because I knew it would be amazing. But I thought, look, treat this as a taster and I can always come back if I want to. But, yeah, with this full moon riding, I could switch off my lights and I could actually see, you know, these mountain ranges around me and it was very cool. And I, But I only did that after I had carefully assessed the behaviour of the wildlife. And apparently kangaroos and wombats uh, on main, mainland Australia are a lot smarter than they are in Tassie because they just don't <laughs> run out in front of you. Probably used to more people maybe. And so they've like maybe, I don't know. I don't know. they're, they're also, just smarter. 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> Every everything's a little bit slow in Tassie, so you know it's probably it. <laughs> oh, that's funny, especially if you apply it to yourself and your race strategy, or not your race. <laughs> it's not a strategy; it's just who you are. We covered yeah. this. So, where did your non-race strategy end up, uh, or where did it finish you in this race? I think from watching your dots, I I know, but yeah. So I finished up third in this race event um there was there were three of us who were so or actually four of us who were not not too far off the pace of each other and then um the, the front guy really stretched his legs on the oh, I won't I won't lay that away there was a guy with very good technical skills who um who stretched his legs towards the end there but um yeah there were a few of us who were closely matched there weren't a lot of people riding um and most I think there people, was 14 yeah and most I, people were on the map most people didn't finish that they cut the route in half or they bailed out early because it was a lot tougher than they're expecting and they maybe didn't have the time available um but yeah it i mean for me it's never a results driven thing it's just you know if if i've ridden the ride the way i've wanted it to to, to ride it for me and i did for this and i was stoked you know I, I rode through the night i had a a four minute dirt nap just before sunrise um and you know otherwise i felt Felt strong the whole way. Did the best I could. That happened to to put me in third. But um, yeah, just got back on a train the next day and got a, a flight home. And yeah, came back to Tassie. So everyone else was a Victorian. Oh, sorry, there was one person who'd come from interstate, but they drove. So it's always logistically a lot trickier for me traveling from Tasmania for any mainland events because I am having to get on a plane. Um, but you know, if I want to be able to get out there and and see this stuff, that's just what I've got to do. But for a lot of mainlanders, they think it's it's crazy that you would fly and bus and train just to ride for 26 hours. But, you know, I think if COVID's taught us anything, it's important to make the most of every fucking opportunity that comes your way. So I didn't have anything on that weekend, so why not? Yeah. Oh, I love that approach. Um, maybe a better metric is not the place that you got, but... You know, you have, you know, and I think we've kind of painted a picture that you're like super accident prone, but I mean, there's quite a few things that you've done previous to this recent uh, batch of like misfortunes and, you know, each of them have been different, you know, it's not like you're always falling off your bike or anything. Um, but what I thought was maybe neat is, I, I don't know, how did you feel about, um, I don't know, just, just a good clean ride, you know what I'm saying? Just like you know, you're like, okay, I've had some adversity, but it feels good to just kind of like have a nice clean ride and like have your body function and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Look, I mean, I guess that, that is definitely the, the norm for me. Um, my body is usually fine and I'm usually not crashing. Um, but it was nice that I could, um, one week after having a decent mishap, I could just get back on and and ride for 26 hours as fast as I could on on a tough course. And my body was like, oh yeah, cool. This is what we do. Um and yeah, it's I think it's always nice when when you bounce back from something with no ill effects and it's just another um it's another uh positive indication that your body is just conceded that you do stupid shit to it and that's just what we do. So that was that was nice. All right, last question. So, uh, my, my race that I host, uh, is going to be the weekend that, well, it's like five days from now or six days from now. So it's coming up. 
I don't, uh, I don't think that you're the type of person that tells anybody what to do, but, uh, do you, do you have any like, uh, tips or tricks or, or advice for people that you've learned over the years of like how to approach, you know, an event? Cause every, you know, the neat thing about these uh, events, races, whatever, is that everybody is pushing themselves at whatever level and whatever journey that they're on. Right. Like, might be someone's first time or someone might be trying to go through the night without sleep, you know? I would say that the most important thing is um, be knowing knowing your food and water requirements. Um, that's That can be, you know, how much water you need, how much food you need for any given period of time, but also making sure you know what food works for you, like is actually effective in providing energy and what food you'll be prepared to eat, even if you're feeling really crappy. You know, when if you're really, really fatigued, your guts are a bit upset or whatever, you need food that you can just keep shoveling in because ultimately food and water is all you need to keep pedaling a bike. And it's not, it's not about having the skills or the mental fortitude or anything like that. It's just, you know, your body is just just like a vehicle where you're pouring diesel in. You just need food and water. Um and for, I'm very lucky that I can just sort of treat my um, body like a, a garbage bin basically and shovel in whatever, um, but but also, which for me is cliff bars and hot cross buns from the supermarket, by the way. Um, but everyone everyone's different. You know, some people- That need- hot cross bun <laughs> Instagram video that you shared made me laugh my ass off. It's pretty accurate for when I prepare food. It's like, oh yeah, here's a hot cross bun. Here's four kilos of butter. Yep, we're good. Um, <laughs> that I literally, I don't like laugh out loud too often, but I'm like alone in my home and I'm just, I, cause it was unexpected. <laughs> it got me good chuckle. Um, but yeah, look, that's for me, I think that's by far the most important thing. Um, because that's what will allow you to keep going. So no matter what your strategy is, like you, you might not want to keep going. You might want to have short days and rest heaps and really, you know, lap up the experience riding it that way. And that's great. But Either way, you need food and you need water um, and you need stuff that works for you. And what works for me as far as fueling definitely won't work for most people. But, you know, that's what what works for them. Like there's people who have, you know, tuna and beans and then they'll have some crisps and then they need to have some chocolate. They have a three-course meal. <laughs> and for me, that's just like, oh, fuck, you know, that's a waste of time. Like I don't need that. Um, but, yeah, you need to have sorted that out. Before you start riding, you need to know what you're comfortable with because you may not have opportunities to buy the right type of food en route, or you don't want to have got it wrong halfway through and suddenly, suddenly be bonking or not able to take on food or feeling sick or whatever. Um, so that's key. And also just knowing knowing where shit is on your bike and what clothes you need to put on for particular weather. So you're not just, you know, trying trying things out every time it rains you don't need to try every different combination of clothes you know what i mean set it's, of it's so true for. though you really um, do like yeah. once you figure and, and, you that know, out it's it makes riding through different types of weather much more manageable and like it's like not a big deal you're just like oh i need this shirt or i need this layer and you just go oh absolutely yeah and you know if you do the maths on how much time you spend faffing around stopped doing stuff so you know whether that's if you stop three times in half an hour to try different combinations of clothes, that might be five, six minutes you've burnt that you otherwise wouldn't have. 
and it starts adding up. Suddenly you can ride 3K an hour, sorry, let's say, you know, one and a half miles an hour slower and and it's just because you've stopped less or you've yeah. spent less time trying to figure out where you put your jacket, you know, and that's great. Anything that allows you to ride slower there you go. Yeah, and well, still less get there quicker and, yeah, is You an get awesome to enjoy win. it a little bit more. I'm all about that. That's my approach. Well, I'll let you go back to work. Good advice uh, for everybody that's going to line up for the East Texas Showdown. Uh, I always enjoy your approach to cycling. Um, uh, it's very much your own, like, approach and yeah, I, I appreciate that. We so many people are like trying to do it this way or whatever, get in like a groove. And I think it does get away from some of that, like that, like solo aspect of the sport that is really at the core of like, why are you out here doing it? Um, and, and doing it, you know, for yourself. I, we could, we could talk, uh, I remember this last time was a sure. problem. I could talk to you, uh, quite a bit. I can't believe it's already been two years. Yeah. Well, t- time flies when you're having fun with COVID, doesn't it? Yeah. Fuck COVID. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, I should let you go back to work, eh? Yeah, no worries. Well, best of luck with your, your ride and for everyone else who's, uh, riding on the weekend. Well, thank you very much. It was, uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. A lot of fun. And I'm glad you're happy and healthy and doing well. Yep. Doing well. Doing well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't tell you about my bloody experience. I was just real quick. I was on a uh, bikepacking trip in New Mexico and um, we stopped at the top of this climb to enjoy the view. And I look down and there's blood on my bike and my bags and my shoe and my cycling shoe right there has still got blood all over it. Um, and I had my leg warmer on and, and so I like went to pull down my leg warmer and I got blood all over my hands. I mean, lots of blood. And I'm like, what the fuck is, you know, and I pull it down and there's just blood coming out of my leg and it ran down my leg. Like it's significant. Like I'm 42 years old. I think this is the most in my life I have ever bled to the point where I'm like, okay, I haven't been here before you know, how concerned should I be? Like how much blood can I lose? I wasn't that concerned, but I mean, it was, it was a lot. Um, anyway, we, we get to camp and I did the exact same thing as you did. I just put my leg warmer back on. I was like, you know, we'll get, just get to camp and, and assess then. And, and we took a look there and we had the first aid. So we just cleaned it up and it turned out to be this tiny little, like, cut that was right on an artery like right at the surface of my shin and it just bled profusely it was nothing it was a scratch it was twas a scratch but it bled like it was some great thing and everybody at camp was you know like holy shit you know that kind of deal I thought anyway, you were going to say that you, I thought you were going to say you copped a massive leech because that can be always a scary experience too oh no I haven't had that one I haven't had that pleasure yet something to look forward to there you go. That's for the next trip. All right. Well, thanks again. Enjoy work. No worries. Enjoy your Sunday night. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to check out the post for this episode over at bikesordeath.com. I'm going to be posting a bunch of pictures that M sent over. We're going to post some murder shanties and some terrain where she rides. And of course, pictures of wombats. So you don't want to miss that. Head over to bikesordeath.com, check out that post. 
And while you're there, why not check out the Bikes or Death store? We got lots of great, great Bikes or Death merch for you fine folks. If you want to support the show and rep the lifestyle and let people know that you're a bod -er, head on over there and check that out, why don't you? Well, we are in full swing over here in Texas, getting ready for the East Texas Showdown. That kicks off, let's see... This episode comes out on Wednesday, and the race kicks off at 8 a.m. Friday, April 1st. So if you're not going to be there and you want to watch some dots, you can tune into our Instagram channels. There is a dedicated East Texas Showdown Instagram account. It's easy to find. It's at East Texas Showdown. And we are going to be posting a lot. We're going to try to be content heavy this year, really allow dot watchers to follow along, join in the journey, the party, the fun, and the revelry. If you don't have Instagram and you're still living in the Stone Ages, you can go directly to trackleaders.com and there's a list of all the dot watching opportunities there and you'll find East Texas Showdown. Of course, if you're archaic and you don't have the internet, then you just have to come to the Bullet Grill and hang out with us. All right, well, we're going to go in and wrap this one up, get it in the can, because I got lots to do to get ready for 100 racers to be showing up in East Texas in just a couple of days. So I got to get my booty busy. Oh, one thing that I should mention real quick is that we are going to try to do something unique this year with the East Texas Showdown. We're going to make rider call-ins available so riders during their their ride their race they will be able to call into a voicemail system leave a voicemail and then we're going to try to publish a daily recap every single day at 7 p.m central time so uh, the idea there is that you know if you want to follow along every day you can tune in and we're gonna uh, i don't know we're gonna see how it goes but we're gonna have everybody give their name their location on the route and whatever's on their mind. And then hopefully through that, we'll be able to kind of follow along on their journeys and it'll just be one more piece of the puzzle, whether it's dot watching or seeing the pictures and videos on uh, social media. Um, and now we're going to do the podcast as well. So uh, lots of good content coming your way this weekend. So if you're not riding your bike and you need some inspiration, there you go. We're going to have it on tap for you all weekend long. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Now, don't forget, go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Oh, death.